0: Hashem Hashem, we are back here in Aventura at the Breast of Center. Uh, we are continuing the same Mishnah. We are sure 129 in the series, the Pirkei uh, Avot series. Hashem, we are closing in on two years on this series. And to be honest with you, between you and me, I'm not in a hurry to finish. I'm enjoying the series so much, I don't want to finish it. I don't want to, I think we're going to add Mishnayot at the end. We'll go back to one again. No, but Baruch Hashem, the, the last chapter, chapter 6, which we're not even there yet, we're still at chapter 5, each Mishnah may be ten shiurim. Each Mishnah may be ten shiurim, Bezad Hashem. Either way, when it's, good, when it's good information, you don't have to be in a hurry to uh, to finish it, because the reality is that we have to consume information and uh, apply it to our hearts to uh, fix fix our hearts of stone, other Hashem, and make them into flesh. So today also, we want to... Uh, uh, Thank Hashem for the miracles that are happening in each individual's life. Uh, Hashem, today you have some special treats from one of the people that had a, a miracle. It's a, uh, it's a good thing to do, for uh, for a person to thank Hashem every day. Hashem ki There's a pasuk says you have to thank Hashem because it's good. What's good? Everything is good, but sometimes Hashem gives you a treat. Sometimes He spoils you. Sometimes you have you woke up in the morning, but it's already good But sometimes he gives you a special treaty do something above and beyond so I can tell you from personal experience that uh, Having medical issues big or small is always always makes you feel like you're behind or you're, it sh- makes you struggle makes everything more difficult Things that are as simple as wearing glasses are sometimes a difficulty. They create difficulties. I remember when I was younger I uh, wore glasses and uh, it gave me migraine headaches. Now, the type of headaches that uh, most people get, you get a headache, you get to take an Advil, goes away after a little while. But the type of headaches that I used to get, Baruch Hashem, pretty much would collapse me until pretty much I would pass out and hopefully, hopefully, wake up the next day. But they would go on for six, seven, eight, nine hours solid. Baruch Hashem, special kaparat avonot. So... Wearing glasses is not always as easy as it seems. Some people don't get a bochah Hashem, don't get the the, uh, the headaches, but some people do. Either way, it's annoying. Either way, it's frustrating at times. So, one of the things that we thank Hashem for today in today's world is that medicine is advanced in a way that it allows people to solve things that are bothersome to them uh, in a relatively simple way. One of them is that you can get a, something called a LASIK surgery. And uh, you can solve the problem. Now, in a day when I got to surgery uh, almost 15 years ago, in 2003, it was still under the knife. So it was still uh, it didn't hurt at all, but you know, it only took a few minutes, but it was still relatively nerve-wracking. You know, they open your eye, and it's like you have somebody with a knife on top of it. It's kind of scary. My brother, God bless him, who uh, saw the whole thing, finds it uh, found it fascinating. I didn't exactly find it fascinating, but I found... The next day, fascinating. Why? Because I'm actually able to see without glasses. Today, it's even more advanced. The laser is even more advanced. Than Hashem. One of the students, Baal Hashem, got a uh, LASIK surgery, going to the uh, doctor's office with glasses, leave without Baal Hashem, perfect vision. And that, you may not think it's a miracle, but in reality, anyone that has struggled with glasses for even a day, anyone that even had a hair in their eye, a hair, One time in your life you have a hair in your eye and you realize how miserable it feels to not be able to see with one eye for five minutes. For five minutes, you realize how difficult it is for people sometimes when they wear glasses, they get headaches or they forgot their glasses or their glasses broke. It's a tough thing. I personally think that till this day, with the exception obviously of the Torah, the best money I ever spent was investing into fixing my eyes. That was the best investment I ever made. I remember I used to say this all the time in the uh, business world. He tell me, what's the best investment you ever made? I said, fixing my eyes. I said, yeah, what about stocks? I said, fixing my eyes. <laughs> Such is the uh, miracle that Hashem gives you a painless surgery, Baruch Hashem, when it works. Not all surgeries work, so when something works, you have to thank Hashem. You have to make it a standard in your life to thank Hashem. I remember one time I learned Chavruta with a Avreich from uh, Chafetz Chaim Yeshiva, or Kolel. And we he came up with an idea. It was a fascinating idea. And Boch Hashem, I try to do it every day. Sometimes I succeed. Sometimes more than others. But to think Hashem, everybody knows think Hashem. But sometimes we forget. Now, if you had a flight tomorrow, you have to go somewhere important. What would you do? What would you do? You give yourself a reminder, right? You put an alarm clock. You tell your wife. Tell your kid. You tell your neighbors. Everything you possibly can, just to make sure, you don't miss the flight. If you had an appointment to get a job or a new customer or something like that, you'd make sure that you don't miss the train. Pun intended. Uh, when something is important, you try to make an appointment. You try to make an appointment. So what I did, and my was a, uh, it was a good idea, very good idea, ayon tov of this avrech from Chafetz Chaim, he said, give yourself a reminder. So I said, that's a good idea. So every day at 12.30 in the afternoon, my phone goes off as an alarm, and you can see it on my phone. It says, time to thank Hashem. Time to thank Hashem. For what? (laughs) If you think about all the things you have to thank Hashem, the world would finish, you wouldn't finish. You say, oh, I have nothing to thank Him for. Oh, that means you have your ungrateful person. That's all it means. But in reality, every person should take this, 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 this uh this idea, and apply it to their life. It makes you happier. It's one of the secrets to happiness. And the reason why is because... One of the reasons why people get miserable is because they look at all the bad things they have in their life. They look at the fact that their bank account is negative. They look at maybe they're not married. Or they look at worse, they have a bad marriage... They look at maybe they don't have any kids. Shalom, They have kids, but they're not exactly the greatest kids. They look at their, uh, they don't have a job, or maybe even worse, they have a bad job. All types of things we look at, all the things we don't have. It's very easy. It's very easy to look at a board full of white, and tell you, okay, so what's on the board? There's a one, one black dot. And everybody says, oh, there's a black dot. No one's noticing all the white. The average human being is going to miss the whole white. Why? He's looking at the one missing thing. There's one thing there, the one black dot. One ugly dot in the middle. That's what we notice. We don't notice all the good, all the white. Same thing with our life. We notice all the bad things because they take up all of our attention. And the reality is, is that that's what makes us Miserable. That's what makes a person miserable because all he can think about is the miserable things in his life. This is also why it's a, always a horrible idea, always, without an exception, to share your personal life, especially your marriage, with people. Always. It's never a good idea to share your marriage, your relationship with other people because generally the things that you're going to share are bad things. Oh, he yelled at me last night. I can't believe it. That piece of boop. And that peanut boop. And all the things. All the things. You're going to tell him about that. You're not going to say that three days later. Oh, he apologized. He brought me flowers. He's like, you're not going to say that one. That we forget. We say when he yelled at me. Oh, he came home late. I can't believe it. What does he think? This is a bus stop. Maybe he wants me to make him food in the middle of the night. This guy. Uh, that's what you're to tell. woman calls her mom. Says, yeah, you couldn't believe it. This husband of mine, what kind of husband it is. Can tell him all the bad things. Same thing with the, with, the, with the husband. He calls his mom. He goes, Ima, I don't know. I don't know. Is this a kapata not wife? Why? What happened? She didn't cook today. He doesn't tell his mom that she cooked breakfast, lunch, and dinner every day for the last month straight. He doesn't say that. He just says that one day she had a headache. She couldn't cook. He reminds his dad. That's what he mentions. That's the nature of a person. That's the etzara that influences a person to think about the bad. Now, it's bad enough that we do it to ourselves, that we feed ourselves this poison to only think about the bad. It's much worse when we share it with other people. And the reason why is because these other people are not going to hear the good. They're only going to hear the bad from you. So what ends up happening is that they develop a hate for this person that you keep talking to them about, your husband, your wife, or whatever. So one day, something small happens, and it's not really that big of a deal, and all of a sudden this friend, or this in-law, or this whoever you have, this person that you've been telling all uh, all your garbage to, tells you, you know what? I think you could do better. I think you could do better. I think you should leave him. I think you should leave her. You could do better. Why? Why do they think you could do better? Because all they know is bad. They don't know that he took you to dinner. They don't know that he says thank you for everything. They don't know that he puts your shoes on in the morning because he loves you. That's all. They don't know all that stuff. They don't know the romantic things and the sweet words. They don't know all that stuff. They all know that he yelled at you on Tuesday, three years ago. They still remember that part. So when you tell people about your life, they develop a hate for them. And even if it doesn't go to the extent where they get the courage to go into your relationship and tell you to break up and uh, help the statistics of divorce increase to 100% instead of 90% like it is now, what ends up happening is that sometimes you see these people and you see that they're giving your husband or your wife an attitude. And your wife, she doesn't know, like, why doesn't she like me? Why doesn't your sister like me? Why doesn't your mom like me? Why doesn't your brother like me? He's like, I don't know. Why you don't know? You've been telling them all that she's the worst wife in the world. Anytime you talk about her, five times you talked about her in the last two years, all five times you told her this woman is the worst. You didn't tell them about the million and a half other times she did good for you. You didn't tell them that. You only told them about the bad things. So all they know, all the information they have, it's not their fault even. All the information they have is bad. So now they look at it like, yeah, this is the woman that's torturing my brother.
1: Yeah, that one. Yeah, that one.
0: i kill her if I can. I love my brother. All of a sudden, developer. So what happens? Abutai, keep your mouth shut. Don't share your business unless it's for help. Meaning, with someone that's qualified. What does it mean to be qualified? Rule number one of qualified means they're unbiased. Qualified doesn't mean they have a PhD in their name, doesn't mean that. Qualified means that they have an unbiased opinion, that they don't care one or or the other, they don't care right or left, they care about the truth, whatever the truth may be. So when you tell your brother, your sister, your mom, your cousin, anyone that's related to you, by default they're biased, they're biased against the other person. So that's why it's a very bad idea to share anything but good news with your family and your loved ones. Like, yeah, but what are we going to talk about? Find something else. There's something called Torah. You should try it. It's It's an invention a few thousand years ago. Find other things to talk about. Don't talk about your relationship. You're going to ruin it. You're going to ruin your relationship that way because eventually the person finds out that you told something about them to other people, even though it happened two years ago, and they get embarrassed and then they never want to see your family again. And then they hate them back. And it just became—it becomes problem. It's already difficult as it is to have in-laws and so on. All these strangers come to your life. You feel like you married the girl. You didn't—you didn't realize you married a family. You know, it's already difficult as it is. You start telling people bad things about the guy. You're creating problems for yourself. So, this, this, um, this idea of learning how to be grateful should also help you with that. Because now you're going to be forced to actually think every day, what good is my life? What do I have that's any good? And you can't stop, you can't move on with your life until you find something. And you start to realize, wow, I have a wife, wow, I have a husband, that already is good. Why, wow, you know how many people are begging to have a shidukh One guy told me, goes, yo, you know, there's uh, so many women, there's so many men, how come nobody's getting married? I said they're doing it to themselves. We don't have a Shiduch crisis. We have a Midot crisis. People don't know how to behave. They don't know what they want or they want the wrong thing. People, Baruch Hashem, we have. People we have. But Midot, not so much. That's what we learn Musa. You have to learn how to break down the things you want and identify the important stuff. Identify the things that you need and not just want when you're looking at a shidduch, when you look at anything in life. But at the same token, if you start thanking Hashem for the things that you have, first and foremost, you'll realize that you have a lot more than you do. You realize, you start looking around your house like, wow, thank God I have this book. I learned so much from this book. What a good book I had. Oh, thank God I had this idea. What an idea I had. It changed everything. What was it? To change the tire. Good idea. Why? Well, imagine you didn't think about the idea of changing the tire. And next thing you know, it went out in the middle of the highway, in the middle of the night, on the way back from shoe, And all of a sudden, you're like, oh, no, I'm not going to shoe anymore because in case I get a flat tire again. So you had the idea to change the tire. And so on and so forth. You started thanking Hashem for big, small, everything. Thank God for this food. Thank God for the food tasting good. Thank God for kids. You can thank Hashem literally for every single thing in your life. There's so many things to thank Him for. Sometimes you find yourself that you really just like, you could continue thanking Him for the rest of the day. The day is just going to continue keep thanking Him. But don't ask for anything. Now you do the rest of the day. During this time, this 12.30 in the afternoon, for me it's 12.30, you can do whatever you want. During this time, just thank Him. And the reason why is because if every single time you talk to Hashem, you're asking Him for stuff, okay, technically He's God, you're supposed to ask Him for help and so on and so forth, but it's not so special, you're just like everybody else, you're just asking for stuff. But if you just thank Hashem, that's it, Hashem, I just want to tell you I love you, why? Look what you did for me, that's it. What do you think makes you so more special? being like everybody else that always asks day after day like he's an ATM machine or someone that takes a moment out of the day that thanks Hashem. Just thank him. That's it. This is a very good idea and it helps. It also helps you become happier because you realize that you have a lot. The second thing is is that it makes you realize that your problems technically are not so bad. Even though you have some big problems, everybody has big problems, when you compare and contrast the problems versus the good, you realize, wait, well, you know what? I'm still okay. I'm still okay. I'm still not so bad. And then last but not least, you see how life progresses and the things that used to be the problems ended up being the good. They go back to the good eventually. Just like Hashem says, everything, that's, everything that He does is always for the good. So eventually that problem that you have today eventually switches sides. Why? Because you realize that at the end of that problem... It actually turned out good. Why? Well, you had a flat tire. But the flat tire, ended up meeting somebody. That somebody ended up uh, helping you in something else. You guys became friends. He introduced you to a shidduch. He introduced you to a new rabbi. He introduced you to something else. Whatever happened, something good came out of it. And you realize that all the things that you thought were bad actually ended up being good in the end. Which gives you even more of a reason to thank Hashem. So... In general, you should add it to your life to thank Hashem every day. It'll make you a much happier, more grateful person. It'll make your relationship with Hashem more real, more significant, more special. But also, it'll improve your relationship with your people around you. Because part of the things you have to thank is the the things that are around you. If the people around you are good enough for you to thank Hashem for them, then that means you're going to appreciate them more. If every day you're thanking Hashem for your wife... The next time you see your wife, you say, "You know what? I love you. Why? I just thought about you when I was talking to Hashem. I thought about you. That how much I have to say. You know what? I told him. I just didn't tell you. It's time I told you also. And you realize that your your life, your life becomes better. This is a uh, it's, it's it's a small idea, but it's big. Yes." not saying that. I didn't say that. You said that. What I'm saying is that at 12.30 in the afternoon, say thank you. That's what I said. As far as asking for things, different time. You have 24 hours a day. If you take 5, 10, 15, 20, 30 minutes to thank Hashem, whatever you have, just to thank Him, don't ask for anything, just thank Him. You still have, let's say you did it for a whole hour. You have so many good things in the world to thank Him for. You had a whole hour of thank you. It's such a fantastic life that still leaves you with 23 hours to ask for stuff. Deal? When he doesn't answer, I know it's deal. So, this is a good eitzah. It's a good eitzah for us to improve our life. Part of the most important things that a person needs to uh, do in his life is to be grateful. A person that's ungrateful... Is one of the people, there are a few people that the Torah says that Hashem hates those people. Now, a lot of people are gonna tell you, no, no, Hashem loves everybody. It's not true. To say that Hashem loves everybody is a lie. It's actually Kfirah There are certain people that Hashem hates. Actually, in last week's Pasha, Pashad Beit Khanan, he says, I sonai, there's people that I hate them, and they hate me, I hate them. One of those people that Hashem hates is an ungrateful person. Why? That's a midah of Bilam. That's a midah of Bilam. Hashem hates Bilam. That's why He has no share of the world to come. And that's what we're going to go over in this Mishnah in Pirkei Avot to understand what is the difference between the students of Bilam versus the students of Avraham Avinu. Yes, you have a question before I start. Go ahead. You're raising your hand? No? I'm just hinting? Oh, on the pen. So anyway, the cookies, a special holy cookies, for you to enjoy. A miracle that happened, Hashem, to one of you. There's a few other miracles coming up, other Hashem. A few of you are finishing Masechetz. There's, I think, uh, three students, Baruch Hashem, in the next few days, next week or so, that are finishing Masechetz. This is really, for me, this is as good of a news as it gets. This is like for me, it's like having a baby. When he, when a student. Finishes a masechet, that means they have a reason to live in the world. They've achieved something. Rav Shalom, he says, every page you finish in the Gemara, you have a purpose to live. You actually lived for something. There was a point for you coming to the world. So imagine you finish a massechet. You finish a massechet, it's a big thing. It's a very big thing. If you remember, if anyone that came to the Shur, watched the Shur from Sunday, we talked about the Admo mitzans. The Admo mitzans Baruch Hashem. Despite all the difficulty that he had, he succeeded in a very big way. Built a hospital, huge chassidut, Bauch Hashem, had a new brand new family after they killed his entire family, his wife and eleven kids, Hashem achem. He started a whole new family, new wife, seven more kids, Bauch Hashem Built a world of Torah in Netanya in Israel and also in the United States, and uh, the whole. Chassidut that he built, all Chassidut that he built, was based on Torah. What does it mean Torah? To such an extent that the way they, the way he taught his students, the way his students taught their children, until this day, it's the same thing. The reason why this Chassidut has so much kedusha and success is because Torah wasn't just something they heard about, or they heard, or they, they they go over once a you know once a day or once a week or when it's convenient, or during the holidays. No, no. Torah was the foundation, is the foundation, to such an extent, when the Talmidim wanted to make the the Admo happy. Now, in Hasidut, the Admo is everything. Obviously, other than God. Unlike the video that we published today, Baruch Hashem, where there's a Hasidut in the world, That's a very big Hasidut that has made a mistake. Part of them have made a mistake where they've made the Admor God. unfortunately. Hopefully this video will help them. But anyway, the Hasidut Mitzan, the Hasidut of the Admor Mitzans, the special part is that he taught them that God comes first and the Admor is a leader. And what do the people want to do with a leader that they love? They want to make him happy. So what do they do? They say, "Oh, Kvod I have a present for you. What? I'm gonna lear, I'm committing to learning 250 pages of Gemara by heart." They would start dancing. They would start celebrating. They would start singing. Why? Little student, little 15, 18, 17 year old, whatever it was, is saying to the Admor, I'm gonna learn 250 pages of Gemara. That's the present for the Rav. That's the present for the, the Admor." That's all he wanted. So all the students will prepare. What are you doing? I'm going to give him 10 pages. I'm going to give him 200 pages. I'm going to give him 100 pages. And that's why this Hasidut, my Rav told me, this Hasidut has countless people that literally know a thousand pages or more of Gemara by heart. By heart. Why? Because the Admar said to rise everything. That's Hasidut. That's uh, that's what Hasidut is supposed to be about agen Alenu was the prophet of all prophets, the rabbi of all rabbis. And he starts this week's parashat Ekev in an unusual way. Parashat Ekev starts in a way that's different than most of the Torah because if you haven't noticed, most of the Torah is rebuke. Most of the Torah, it's not even half of it. I used to say it's half of the Torah is rebuke. Half of the Torah is constructive criticism. Half of the Torah is Musar. That's not right. It's almost all of it. It's virtually all of it, actually. That's why in Gemara Masechet Shabbat, page 32b, Rashi puts commentary on the Pasuk from Jeremiah and he says that Torah... And the word Musar are synonyms, meaning it's the same thing. It's the same thing. It's like saying Musar, you're saying Torah. Saying Torah, the same Musar. It's the same thing. It's not like, it's like it. No, no, it's not like it. Like it is like having you know fake cheese and real cheese. Soy cheese and real cheese. It's like it. Soy milk and real milk. It's like it, but everybody knows it's not the same. That's like it. No, no. Rashi says, no, no, Musar, Torah, it's the same thing. The synonyms. In the Torah, there's Psukim in the Torah where it says the word Musar. It says, when it says Musar in the Torah, it means Torah. means Torah. doesn't mean, oh, no, no, it means Torah. And when it says Torah, it means Musar. Only this lowly generation have we arrived to a place where people say, I don't like Musar. Oh, you don't like Torah? No, no, I don't like Musar. Yes, oh, you don't like Torah then? No, no, Musar. Torah, Torah. That means you don't know anything about Musar, to know that it's Torah. So the Torah, virtually every page, every verse, every pasuk, everything is Musa. You can learn Musar from all of it. And Musar, and another way to speak it in the English language is to call it constructive criticism. It's trying to criticize you, to rebuke you, to advise you, to consult you, to become better. That's, in essence, what the Torah is about. It's an instruction set to become better in life, whether that's business, or that's marriage, or that's fatherhood, or motherhood, or friendship, or servant, or whatever it is, to become a better person, a better human being. That's, in essence, the entire Torah. Whether it's the first meeting that Am Yisrael had with Hashemit Barach, the wedding... At Mount Sinai. Nisim again, Allah Shalom said, Look at this marriage. He just, he just, on the day of marriage, what do you expect? I love you, I love you. Here's a present. Here's a present. I can't wait for our future. We're gonna have this, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do this. That's what marriage is. You know, the marriage is like that, no? He says, Look at the marriage Hashem ship had with am Yisrael. He says, First of all, don't cheat on me. I'm the only God. Second of all, don't even talk to me a certain way, like any way you want. I'm not your friend. Third of all, remember where, well, actually it's the first one. Remember who, who took you out of Egypt. You used to be this homeless person. I took you out of the gutter. I took you out of the projects. It's the first commandment. I took you out of the projects. You lived in a gutter over there. I took you out. Don't forget. Don't forget who you came from. First commandment. Second commandment. Fourth commandment, by the way, you have to keep Shabbat. And if you don't, I'm gonna kill you. What kind of wedding is this? What kind of wedding is this? I love supposed, I love you, like something. I don't know. Like that's 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 a wedding. No, Hashem says no. That's the wedding. The wedding of Am Yisrael and It barakh was a Mount Sinai, and Hashem took the mountain and miraculously bent it over and put it on top of Am Yisrael. The Gemara says, he says that this mountain, this Mount Sinai, is going to be like a chupa. It goes on top of Am Yisrael, and he says, this is a chupa, we're getting married. Don't forget who took you out of the projects. Don't just talk to me any way you want. Don't cheat on me. Keep Shabbat, I'm going to kill you. All these wonderful, wow, compliments. Words of love. Oh, and by the way, if you don't feel like doing it anymore, you don't feel like getting married, instead of this being a chupa, the Gemara says, this will be your burial ground. That's what Hashem told Am Yisrael at the wedding. Why? Because Hashem is serious about his love for Am Yisrael. And he says, I love you so much, I don't want to lose you. I love you so much... I want to make sure we're on the same page on day one. I want to make sure we have a clear understanding of what our roles are. Why? Because I want it to be a happy marriage. I don't want it to be one of these statistics where there's a 90% chance it's not going to work. Today you get married, 90% chance it's not going to work past three years. 90% chance, meaning if you're going to go into secular marriage, you might as well not get married. Just date. Why? You're going to break up anyway. As a matter of fact, the boyfriend-girlfriend relationships last longer. Obviously, in Judaism, you're not allowed to date. But I'm saying, for the goyim, there's no sense of marriage. By the way, no there's no marriage. There's no mitzvah of getting married. There's no such thing as marriage for no Whenever they're together, they're married. The next day, they don't want to be married, they don't have to be married. Whatever they do civilly means nothing. But in the secular world, you get married, you literally have statistics going against you to such an extent, you have a 90% chance of getting divorced. What's the point then? The worst gambler in the world wouldn't take those odds. The worst gambler in the world. It's like, I'm going to take this. There's a 90% chance against me. Why, why bother? Why bother getting married? But if you look, Baruch Hashem, at the Torah world, Baruch Hashem, it's the opposite. We have much, much lower divorce rates, Baruch Hashem. Still, the fact that we have divorce rates is troubling to begin with. But still, it's single digits, it's very small, and it's usually in places where there's less Torah or no Torah at all, just uniforms. A lot of people wear a costume once a year, some people wear it all year round. Usually, the ones that wear it all year round end up being the ones divorced, or at least one of the people, not always both. So. We see here that Hashem says, I love you, am Yisrael. I love each and every single one of you more than you love yourself. I want this marriage to work. And in order for it to work, we have to be on the same page. In order for it to work, we have to know what our roles are. In order for it to work, we have to be on the same team. And rule number one in marriage is don't hurt each other. Rule number one in marriage, believe it or not, is don't be spiteful. Before your love. Before your love. Before you say I love you. Before you focus all your energy to be passionate. Before everything else. Before you work on your cooking skills and your cleaning skills and your job and your money and your net worth and all that stuff. Before all that stuff. Don't hurt each other. Why? Because with all the money in the world, And all the best food in the world that you made. And the best cleaning where the walls are shining. The walls are shining. You can see everybody's reflection off of them. With all the wonderful gifts that you bought her. You bought her a 10-carat diamond every week, just for fun. In preparation for the million-carat diamond once a year. With all of that stuff that you did, one word, you destroyed her life. One word. You say she's fat. It's the end of the relationship. You say she looks ugly. It's the end. It's not the end of the relationship. It's the end for her. It's it's. She sees it. It's the end of her life. Why? Because any woman that loves a man. She only cares. She mainly cares about his. His desire for her. So the minute that he calls her a name and he says he's not desiring her for her her whole world, everything that means anything to her just collapsed. There was an earthquake, 9.0 in her neshama. So all the diamonds that he ever bought her and the car and the houses and the cooking and the romantic dinners, all that stuff just went to nothing. One word. To fix it, Hashem Yachem, it's sometimes impossible. And that's one time. And that's one time. The same thing goes for the women. A woman that's spiteful could destroy a man, destroy his confidence. If she one time, one time she calls her husband a loser, you're a loser because he lost in something. He made a mistake. He didn't make a mistake. Whatever the case may be. She calls her husband a loser or something similar to that. That's it. He will forever in his mind view himself as a loser as long as she's next to him. He will not be able to get out. In most cases, he will not be able to get out of his own shadow unless she's out of his life. And once she's out of his life, his rise to greatness is not going to be because he wants greatness. It's because he wants to take revenge against her. He wants to prove that she's wrong. And that's why you see a lot of times in the secular world when couples break up, you see that all of a sudden they they, they change drastically. The woman loses a lot of weight. The guy becomes a millionaire. All of a sudden he's a motivational speaker. The guy was depressed on cocaine last week. All of a sudden he's a motivational speaker and he's telling the world how to recover everything. It wasn't the drugs, it was her. It wasn't the weight, it was him. Sometimes certain relationships are poisonous. And the reason why is because they don't know rule number one. Rule number one in relationships is don't be spiteful. Don't hurt each other. Spiteful means you're saying something dafka to hurt the person. Spiteful. tinaulai? No, the is not. The is disrespect. It's like taking revenge to some extent. Almost, almost. It's similar. There's no perfect word for it. Usually most Hebrew words, most English words don't have a perfect word in Hebrew. Hebrew is much more advanced language. English, there's five words for every word. You know, you could say this five words, they all mean the same thing. In, English, in Hebrew, there's no such thing as synonyms. Synonyms means that there's two words that mean the same thing. In Hebrew, there's no such thing. There's no such thing. There's things that mean something similar, but there's a reason why it's different. It means something else also mad a root of the word the the words themselves have a significance each word so the point is it's important to know rule number one don't hurt each other even though sometimes she makes you so upset and even though sometimes he makes you so upset that you want to throw him out of a window and even though sometimes you're so upset that you want to get a divorce, and even though you really want to let her know how you feel, and all that good stuff, don't. Don't. Why? Because you can't take it back. Even if you say, I'm sorry, till next year. You can't take it back. This is important to know. I heard this story once from my mom. How can
1: you never commit shuvah on something you said? You do to Hashem so many so many horrible things, Hashem forgive. And a girl, or your wife, you tell her like some stupid stuff, and then you can never fix it. Like
0: so, I explained to you. My mom, God bless her. Amen. She told me a story one time, and she says, "One time there was a couple. There was a couple, and this couple had a little bit of issues. Had a little bit of issues once in a while." The husband says this once in a while. He says that. And uh, they saw this is not going in the right way. What are we going to do? So they made a deal. They made a deal. The wife said, You know what? Every time you curse me, every time you insult me, every time you do something, I'm just going to take a nail, I'm going to put it on your tree. Here's a tree. The husband has the tree outside, he had a beautiful tree. And he loved this tree. He said, every time you curse me, every time you yell at me, every time you disrespect me, I'm going to take a nail and I'm put it in your tree. He says, okay, that's good. That's a good encouragement for me not to curse you, not to yell at you and so on. He says, and every time you give me a compliment, I take off the nail. And that went on. The husband, Mishkan, he didn't pay attention. He didn't realize that he's talking like a truck driver every other day and he's ripping his uh, wife's neshama into 30 pieces every day. He's making shakshuka out of our neshama. He didn't pay attention. A year later, he sees his tree full of nails. He looks at the tree, he starts crying. He shtabach What'd you do to my tree? Because I didn't do it; you did it. And he realized, wow, this really all this, all this time I cursed you, all this time I yelled at you. He says, "Yes, look, I, I wrote, wrote the notes. This nail is when you called me to. This nail when you called me to. This she wrote it down. Cheshbon. Uh, the women know exactly every time you sinned." You sinned 37 years ago at 8 o'clock in the the morning? She knows. She wrote it down. She knows. A woman never forgets stuff like this. You should know this. Now, the husband feels bad. Why? He sees 30,000 nails on his favorite tree. He feels bad. Not just for the tree now. He feels bad for his wife. So he starts doing tshuva, chata'anu avinu, pashanu every day. Kapar Alech, I love you. How are you? All of us. Oh, this is so delicious. Even though you just spit it out, it's disgusting. But he loves the food. All of us sudden. "Why?" Because he wants. He feels bad. What happened last year? Thirty thousand nails. He says, "I have to do tshuva," and he starts doing tshuva at the end of the year. They go outside. They look at the tree, and he sees there's no nails in the tree. But the problem is there's holes everywhere. He says, "Look what you did to the tree." Goes, I didn't do the. I didn't do the holes. You did the holes. No, I, I give you compliments in the last year. She goes, you're right. You gave me compliments when I took out the nails. She goes, yeah, but there's holes. She goes, yeah, but the damage is still there. There's still a damage. Okay, so you took it back, but there's still damage. There's still a hole in the tree. You can't just say, I'm sorry. What are we? Three years old? I'm sorry. I took your toy. Here it is back. You can't just break somebody's heart and say, I'm sorry. So what does the Torah teach us? If you don't have something good to say, don't say anything at all. Parashat Ekev, Moshe Rabbeinu, starts in an unusual way and he tells us something very interesting. He says, (laughs) He says, Ekev, by the way, means reward, the reward. And it comes from the root of Akev. Akev means heal. Meaning that after you do all these good things, you'll get a reward. So the parasha starts off with this verse in Deuteronomy 7, verse 12. He says, this shall be the reward when you hearken to these ordinances and you observe and perform them, meaning you fulfill the Torah. Not just read it, not just know it, but actually perform it. Hashem, your God, will safeguard for you the covenant and the kindness that He swore to your forefathers. He will love you, bless you, and multiply you. He will bless the fruit of your womb, meaning you'll have children, and the fruit of your land, meaning you'll have money, you'll have panesah, your grain, your wine, your oil, and it goes on and on and on. For a whole paragraph full of blessings and wonderful things. Anything that's any good in this world, Hashem says, I'll give it to you. You want kids? I'll give you kids. You want marriage? I'll give you marriage. You want health? I'll give you health. You want to go against your enemies? Sometimes revenge is sweet. I'll take revenge against your enemies. I'll give the disease that was supposed to go for you when you were sinning. I'll give them the disease. It says it. It says it. So, we see Hashem starts a parasha in an unusual way. Why? He talks about all the wonderful things. All the wonderful things you're going to get. The rest of the parasha, usually you see Hashem at Mount Sinai, do all these things. You would think all this stuff would happen at the wedding. At the wedding, you should say, By the way, if you're a good wife, I'm Israel. I'll 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 give you this, I'll give you this, I'll give you this, I'll give you this, I'll give you this. No, he doesn't do it. You would think, okay, sometime, other time, maybe uh, another time. No, no. The rest of the Torah, it's either he's telling us all the things to do, all the things not to do, the cost of, of, of going against him, Shem Parashat Kitavo, it's coming up in a couple of weeks, Parashat Azinu, Harsh, harsh punishments, Shem somebody understands what's being said in the Torah, almost gets a heart attack every year. It's scary because it's coming from God. It's not coming from me. So the rest of the Torah, it's Hashem telling us what to do or telling us what happens if we don't do it or telling us about all the struggles that our forefathers had. But here it's unusual. It's one of the few places, not the only place, one of the few places that the Torah starts the parasha with reward and such wonderful reward. But there's one critical thing. The word for reward is Akiv. Ekev. ekev, as I just said, comes from the root of the word akev. Akev means heal. Where Chazal is trying to explain to us here, that Shem says that even here when I'm telling you about the reward, even all the wonderful things that you want, I'm telling you they're available. You want marriage, I give you marriage. You want kids, I give you kids. You want anything you want, I can give it to you. Mine is the money. Mine is the gold, Hashem says. Everything is mine. You want it, I give it to you. Anything you want, I give it to you. There's nothing that's beyond me. Nothing. Yeah, but I'm, uh, I'm short. I'm tall. I'm ugly. I'm pretty. I'm, it doesn't make a difference. Anything is available. You may be limited, but your Creator isn't. And I'm telling you, here you can get anything you want. He's not saying, only if you're from this family, you're going to get this specific list. But if you're from a different family, this is not for you. I'll make you a different one. No, no. Every, this list of good stuff is available for all. This reward, available for everyone. But the secret is the first word, Akiv. Akiv means after. After you do what I tell you. After you do what I tell you, after you fulfill the original deal we had on Mount Sinai. So, even in the time that we actually learn about the reward, we're learning yes, this reward is conditional. Not like some people think where I could pray to Hashem all oh, until my eyes bleed and cry and cry and cry, but never do any mitzvot. Some people say, oh, how come Hashem didn't give me a zivug? Do you keep Shabbat, do you keep Ta'at Do you keep anything. Do you keep anything. Oh, and whatever, whatever I can. Okay, so Hashem says, uh, you do whatever you can, he does whatever he wants. You're not fulfilling your deal, he's not going to fulfill his deal. Don't ask Hashem for things if you're not doing anything. Why? Because you're going against him every time. So now a lot of people are confused about their relationship with Hashem. No different than how Bilam was. Bilam, Rasha is named Bilam Rasha. one of the few people in the Torah, it's called Rasha. But in the eyes of Bilam, he was a tzaddik. As the Gemara in Masechet Shabbat says, A person does not see the flaws in himself. Bilam Rasha. In Parashat Balak, he says, Wow, it's so wonderful, this Amish Look at them, look at them in their tents. May I have the end of their forefathers. What then? You're going to live like Bil'am, but you're going to have the death like Av'am. How is that possible? You're going to live like Bil'am. Shabbat has uh, sex with a with a donkey, and you're gonna have the same end as of Avinu. Is something wrong with you? How how you don't work on your midot? You don't work on anything. You don't give stakha. You steal money. You uh, go against Hashem every day, every chance you get, and you want and you want to. You want to have the same end as Moshe Rabenu. How could it? How could somebody be so demented? To think that he can live like Bil'am, but have the end of Abraham. How? How could it be? No. He wasn't on drugs. He was actually considered one of the wisest people that ever lived. No, it's not a joke. It's in a pasuk. Not he thought. He was was married to a donkey. he
1: donkey,
0: He believed he was a tzaddik. That's what he said in the Pasuk. You guys didn't read it? I'm going to show it to you.
1: To no, 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 no. Sure <laughs>
0: <laughs> okay. So in Pasha, in Pasha, in Pasha Balak, you're going to see something. You're going to see something. It's very important to know that when the Torah says, he means yes. Okay. Let's explain. In the beginning of Parashat Balak, we can't spend too much time on this because we've gone over it before, but also uh, because we have a lot of material. And I really would love to finish this Mishnah today because I don't know if we'll even finish it tonight. We'll see. Anyway, in the beginning of Parashat Balak, We see that Balak sends messengers to get Bil'am because he sees that the army of Am Yisrael is superior to his. And one of his generals says the reason why they're winning all the wars is not because of their size, but rather because of the mouth of their prophet, their prophet Moshe. You cannot beat them with your army. You can only beat them with somebody that has a mouth like his, meaning someone that talks to God. So Balak says, does somebody like this exist? I say, yes, there's a person by the name of Bilam. Bilam has a mouth, and he talks to God. So Balak sends messengers to Bilam to convince him to come. After this whole session of go, don't go, and so on, Bilam goes with the people and the Aton, the donkey, sees that Hashem is angry at Bilam and wants to kill him, as it says in the Pasuk, af Elohim ki Adonai lo vehu rochev al God's wrath flared because he was going, meaning because Bilam was going to go to Balak, and an angel of Hashem Stood on the road to kill him. He was riding on his on, uh, on his donkey, on his uh, on his female donkey, and his two young men were with him. So the donkey saw these people, saw this angel, this angel of God, with a sword in his hand. Meaning, we're not joking around. So the donkey is scared. Bilam doesn't see the angel donkey goes, stops. He hits him. Goes to the right, goes to the left. Every time he's trying to avoid this this angel, and the angel keeps blocking in the way, and Bil'am, who doesn't see the angel, hits the donkey three times. The donkey miraculously starts speaking to Bil'am, as it says, And Hashem opened the mouth of the she-donkey. And it said to Bilam, "What have I done to you, that you struck me these three times?" So Bilam doesn't find this unusual that the donkey is actually talking, because he saw him and the donkey as the same thing. Why, as we talked about last week, Bilam said to the donkey, "Because you mocked me. If you were, if, um, if only there was a sword in my hand, I would now have killed you." So the donkey responds it says the donkey says to Bilam am I not your she donkey that you have ridden upon me all your life until this day and Chazal says when it says when it says have I not been your donkey your whole life and that if I've been your donkey your whole life then that already means I've been your donkey but it says, "Not only I was your donkey, but you also rode me the whole time." What does that mean? You might—I was your—I was your wife. I was your wife. So here, Hazal, explained to us that he literally was married to the donkey. Now later on. Later on, as disgusting as it is, this is in the Torah. Torah is trying to tell us something. Torah is trying to tell us something. So now. So now, the uh, Bilam says later on after he curses, he tries to curse Am Yisrael, and does not succeed. He looks at the camp of Am Yisrael. He sees that all of the tents are facing the opposite of each other to show their modesty. No one can look into each other's house. So he sees and he admires the modesty of Am Yisrael, and he says, Me mana yaakov mishparet." It Israel Tamot Nafshi Mot Yesharim Kamo says, "Who has counted the dust of Yaakov, or numbered the quarter of Israel? May my soul die the death of the upright, and my, my may my end be like his." So he's given a word of compliment to Yaakov, meaning to the camp of Israel. He says, "May my uh, soul die like this Yaakov, the original Yaakov. Which Yaakov? Not them. Yaakov Avinu." The upright, the upright, the yesharim, the Torah says, is Avraham, Yitzhak, and Yaakov. May may I die like them, and may my end be like theirs. What does it mean, may my end be like theirs? May my end be like theirs, that may I have Allah, 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 So the question is, how could it be that this guy is violating even the mitzvot of the Bnei Noach? How is he violating such a thing, but yet has the audacity... To ask for the same end as Yaakov Avinu. Another question, another question. How is it that Datan, the, the donkey, saw the angel, but Bilam didn't see the angel? Why not? Why didn't Bilam see the angel originally until after the fact? The simple part of the answer, Rabotai, is the same thing as we mentioned in the Gemara. En Adam roe chova be'atzmo. A person does not see the obligation in himself. He sees everybody else's mistakes But for himself, he only sees the good things. You tell somebody, listen, you know, really you have to work on your midot. Yeah, but you know what kind of chesed I do? But you know what kind of this I do? You know how much staka I gave? You know, I learned yesterday. You know, he mentions all the good things that he does. I'm not asking you about it. I'm not saying you're not doing good things. I'm not saying you're not doing good things. I'm just saying you should work on such and such. Yeah, but you know how I do this. And you know how I do this. You know how I do this. I'm not saying you're not doing it. I'm just telling you, you should work on this one, two, three things. this, this few things. No, but you know how I do this. No, this is a typical person. Why? Because the person does not want to address the negativity in himself. Because addressing the negativity hurts. It bothers him. That means that in reality, he's not all that. In reality, she's not as much of a tzadikah as she thought she was. Yeah, but you know how much I read Tehilim every day? Yes, you read Tehilim, but you tell everybody you read Tehilim. Yes, you invite guests, but it's only because you want to show them how good of a cook you are. Yes, you you, you, you do a few good things, but you don't stop saying la shonara. I'm not saying you don't do good. You do good things. Just I'm just saying stop the bad too. Like people think that they can do bad because they do enough good to fix it. And that is one of the first differences between the students of Bilam and the students of Avram. The Mishnah here in Avot tells us that there's three midot that the students of Avram have. And that is, they have a good eye, a humble spirit, an undemanding soul. Whereas the Talmidim of Bilam Arasha have an evil eye, are arrogant spirit, a greedy soul. Horrible, horrible people. This would have been enough had the Mishnah ended here, but the Mishnah continues and it says, "Ma ben Talmidav shel Avraham avinu le Talmidav shel Bilam Rasha. Talmidav shel Avraham avinu ochlin ba olam azeh venochlin a and aba. Shneimar yesh veotzotem amale." So it says, after we've learned the three Midot that each one of them have, that's the opposite, still the Mishnah repeats it again, and says, yeah, but what's the difference? What's the difference between the two? We just went over it. One has a good eye, the other one has evil eye. One is humble, the other one's arrogant. Isn't that enough? Why are you asking again? It gives more details. It says, "How are the disciples of Avram Avinu different from the disciples of Bilam?" Now we're not talking about Avram or Bilam. We're talking about the disciples. The disciples of Avram enjoy the fruits of their deeds in this world and inherit Olam the world to come. As it says in Proverbs, "to those who uh, to those who love me, to inherit an everlasting possession, which means the world to come, and I will fill their storehouses, which means the reward in this world." But the disciples of Bilam Arashah, they inherit gainum, and they descend into the well of destruction, as it says in the pasuk in Telem. And you, O God, shall lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days, but as for me, I will trust in you. So first and foremost, we see something very unusual. The Mishnah gives us details of the differences, the clear differences between the two, where they literally have the opposite midot: Good eye, evil eye, humble, arrogant, undemanding soul, a person that's greedy, but yeah, it says, What's the difference? What's the difference? What's the secret here, Abutai? The secret here that the Mishnah is trying to teach us is that there are many disciples of Bilam that look exactly like the disciples of Avram. Again. There are many disciples of Bil'am, Rishayim. But if you look at them from the outside, Wow, Avraham, Yitzchak, Yaakov, Moshe, Aaron, Arashah. Why? It's not the same one. It's not the Aaron HaTzadik. It's not the Aaron the Kohen. It looks like him, though. He looks like him. Meaning that the Mishnah here is telling us, looks can be deceiving. Bil'am was 100% convinced he was a tzaddik. We saw it from the psukim. He saw nothing wrong with his actions. He saw nothing wrong with the fact that he's going to curse Hashem's firstborn child. am Yisrael. He saw nothing wrong with the fact that he was married to a donkey. He saw nothing wrong with the fact that he was considered a rasha in every way, shape, or form. That he was the most materialistic person that ever lived. He saw nothing wrong with it. In fact, he saw the opposite. He said, me, I'm a tzaddik. I'm a prophet. I talk to God. Look at the power my mouth has. I talk to God. So Hashem says, ah, you think because you talk to me, that makes you a tzaddik? Even your donkey's going to talk to me. That doesn't make the donkey a tzaddik. The donkey's going to talk to me. Does it make it a tzaddik? No. Hashem showed us that just because somebody was gifted certain things doesn't mean anything. Hashem can give those same things to anyone. He gave the present of prophecy to Bilam to use it for good. He used it for bad, so he showed him, don't think that the gift that I gave you automatically makes you good. Because I gave the same gift to your donkey. Even a donkey can talk to me. Sometimes a person thinks that just because he looks a certain way, or his father's a rabbi, or his uncle's a rabbi, or his great 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 grandfather's the Rambam, or something like that. By the way, you should know anyone that's Jewish from birth is related to some big rabbi. Why? Because we are related originally to one of the Shvatim, one of the twelve tribes. It could be Yudai, it could be a, a Benjamin, Yosef, it could be one. All of us are related to some, someone huge. So don't make it a big deal. Oh, no, my grandfather, he wrote a book. Okay, a lot of people. My grandfather also wrote a book. My great-grandfather also, he, he went to Mount Sinai. Like, does that make me anything? No. doesn't make it, a person will live or die with his own actions. So Bilam, unfortunately for him, did not take this to heart. And he thought that because Hashem gave him this gift, he could do whatever he wants. He could do whatever he wants to such an extent that he could go after every desire that he had. Because sometimes Hashem gives people chokhmah, he gives them wisdom. They go, yeah, I don't have to study as much as you. I only have to study a half hour a day. You have to study three, four, five, six, seven hours. Why? Because I remember every day. I have photographic memory. I only have to study a half hour and I remember more than you. And as we talked about in previous shulim, sometimes Hashem gives this this, uh, special gift to people of memory or of uh, some type of uh, chokhmah. They're just smart. They have a higher IQ than other people. But if those people don't use that special gift the right way, Hashem will take it away. They may continue having that great memory, but if they don't develop good studying skills, then what ends up happening is that all they do is spend their time showing off to people that they can remember a phone book. There was one guy, I remember in a lecture by Rabbi Mizrahi, he told a story about him, he met him one time, there was a guy that was gifted this photographic memory they literally can remember like things like, uh, like better than a computer. And the guy remembered an entire phone book. All the numbers, all the addresses, all the phone numbers, of every single person, an entire phone book. Now that's cool when you're 15 years old and you're in public school and you want to impress the girls or something. But when you're 50 years old, 60 years old, you're already 50% of the way, if not more, on your way out of this world, and you have nothing to show for it, what are you going to go up to Shabbat and say, Yeah, Hashem, I remember the phone book. By the way, Hashem, can you get me to Gan Eden? Why? I remember the phone book. Hashem says, I gave you a memory so you can remember the entire Torah. You remember a phone book. I gave you a gift, and not only you didn't use the gift, you used it against me. I gave you money and you went gambling with it. I gave you money and you went and you bought drugs with it. I gave you a wife and what'd you do? You cheated on her. Why? Well enough of you, one wife. You wanted a second one too. I gave you kids and you didn't take them to yeshiva. You took them to public school. Why? Oh yeshiva is too expensive. I gave you all these gifts and what'd you do? Use it against me. So, Hashem gives all of us gifts. For that, we're supposed to say thank you. But saying thank you in words is only 10% of the battle. The other 90% is saying thank you in actions. Doing something about it. That's why we have, for example, Sudat Odaya. Sudat Odaya is an action. You did something to publicize the thank you to Hashem. To sanctify Hashem's name. Why? Because you're showing people that Hashem does deliver. We don't have to be a Mount Sinai for Him to perform miracles. This is an opportunity to sanctify Hashem's name because there's always somebody there that's having a tough time, that's just about to lose hope. Just about to lose hope because it's hard hard for Him. It's tough. It's this, it's that. So if he hears about your tshuva story, that you found a CD at the hotel you watched a lecture online, you came to a lecture, you met this guy, you did this, and your whole life changed after that, your story can help him get hope again. Why? Because you made it look realistic. You, you went through the same trouble as he did. That's the whole point of me telling you guys my personal story. It's not because I like my personal story. For me, it's suffering. And I don't even tell you half the story. What you guys know, the public knows about the story is maybe, maybe 2, 3, 4% of it. There's a lot more details that I don't share because there's no point. You already know enough. The key is to understand the point of the personal story is to give you hope. You have money problems, we had bigger. You had health problems, it went through that. You had marriage problems, you had through that. You had ma- everything. Baruch Hashem, Hashem gave us a nice package. But for what? For us to tell people, oh yeah, I made it out? No. No, that's to tell you I made it out. To tell you you can make it out. Whatever the problem you have. But you have to follow the same pattern. Meaning, do tshuva. The Talmidim of Abraham, as you can see here, it says something very interesting. It says they're different, not only in their midot where they're humble and they're much more connected to Hashemit Ibarach, they look at everything in a positive way, and so on and so forth. It says something interesting. It says that the disciples of Avram Avinu enjoy their fruits of their deeds in this world. And they inherit olamaba Usually we hear the stories, yeah, he's a tzaddik, skin, he's a tzaddik, skin. Poor guy he's a tzaddik. Poor guy is a miskin. Why? He's a tzaddik, you know, he's homeless, he's a tzaddik. Like we have a demented mindset. We think that anyone that uh, is a tzaddik has to like have a miserable life. Oh, he's poor, he's this, he's that. Here we're seeing the disciples of Abraham opposite. The disciples of Abraham enjoy this world and have ulama ba. Whereas the disciples of Vilam they don't even enjoy this world. They go straight to Gainum. Meaning, they don't even have joy from this world. So how could it be? You see the guy driving his Ferrari on Shabbat. You see the guy driving his Ferrari on Shabbat. Looks like he's enjoying himself. Looks like the guy just put two hundred fifty thousand dollars on black, and it's not nothing for him. You know, it looks like he's enjoying himself. Like what's the? I don't understand. How is he a disciple of Bilam, and he's not enjoying this world? I see him. He's spending all the money in the world. He has all the money in the world. He has this. He has that. It looks like he's happy. That is one of the most important things to know. First and foremost, as we said in the beginning, looks can be very, very deceiving, and in fact, most of the time they are. Not a day goes by and we don't hear another horrible story about someone that looked happy. It seems like in the last few years, almost every month, if not more often, somebody that looked really, really happy Based on their material possessions and how they looked on the internet and their pictures, and the movies they came out with, and the money that the the, the media said they made, these really, really happy people jumped off a bridge. Meaning they did the saddest thing you can possibly do. They gave up. To such an extent, they killed themselves. Now it doesn't match. You have what it seems like in this parashat you have the Akiv, you have the reward. Moshe Rabbeinu says, wait a minute, I'll give you a kid. I'll give you this. I'll give you this. I'll give you, I'll, ah, Hashem is going to give you all these things. It looks like these celebrities had all of it. Look at the, the, Robin Williams. He had no less than a hundred million dollars. He had a wife. He had kids. He had a successful career, whatever. He, he, by his definition, successful. You had the A kid. You had the reward. Why, you, why are you killing yourself? Why are you hanging yourself with a belt? Hashem Yachem. I mean, you have to be really, really like hate yourself to get to such a level? Why is this Anthony Burdain, the guy had a TV show famous around the world, every day he eat whatever he wants, do whatever he wants, buy whatever he wants, and why are you killing yourself? Why are you killing yourself? The other fashionista, the other uh, fashion uh, designer, whatever she was, she had, she was world famous, everyone knew her, she had an opinion that everybody liked, and so on and so forth, very controversial, very this, very that, why are you killing yourself? Why kill yourself? Some fashion designer, a woman from the fashion designer, she killed herself, like I think, like a week before Anthony Bourdain. Or the guy that was the lead singer of Linkin Park. Killed himself just a couple of months after his best friend killed himself. He had, I think, six kids. Like, you had the a cave You had the money. You had the kids. You had, you had the a had. The, why are you killing yourself? I mean, listen, going through a tough time, Fine. Crying a little bit, fine. Smashing your head against the wall in the wall a few times, fine, no problem. Struggling, no problem. Why are you killing yourself? Like killing yourself, that's like the, that's that's the end. It doesn't get more desperate than that. Now everybody says, no, no, it's it, it's depression, it's chemical based. They had a misbalance. Everybody's used. Everybody's a scientist now. Everybody's a scientist. No, no that a chemical imbalance, depression is a chemical imbalance, and they were taking this pill, and they were not taking the pill, why'd you get to that point? Why'd you get to that point? What happened? Why did You had the reward, you had the money, you had the wife, you had the kid, you had the husband, you had everything. Why'd you get to the point where you're, for, for fun, you're putting a few lines of cocaine just for breakfast with a little cereal on it? What happened? Why'd you get to that point? What happened? What happened to Abu is that they all looked at the reward but not their obligation. People want the reward and they think that the reward is purely material and the obligation that's for other people. But in reality what we don't realize is the bigger reward is not the material. The bigger reward is the obligation. The bigger reward is the Torah, is the mitzvot, because that's the connection to the real good. The money, the kids, the wife, the husband, the job, all that other stuff. Some people get it, some people don't. But Moshe Rabenu tells us you're going to get a reward. So what does it mean? If you don't have any kids, you don't have any reward? No, you have a reward. What does it mean? If you don't have any uh, any money, you don't have a reward? You have. The real reward is beyond the material. But since most people are not going to buy into it, he says you're going to get that too. The real reward is connection to Hashem Barach. When you wake up in the morning, you say, Thank you, Hashem, for, thank you for bringing back my soul. Why? I'm happy with my life. You have problems though. You can't even afford a bankruptcy lawyer. You don't have any money. You don't have any this. Even the bankruptcy court doesn't want to talk to you. Thank you Hashem for the problems. Thank you. I love you. Thank you. Why? Because you're connected to the source of all good. That's the real reward. The real reward is being connected to Hashem. The material, that's for some people. That's going to hold you over until you realize what the real good is. Bilal Magashah did not realize this. With all of his gedula, with all the things that Hashem gave him, he thought, oh, I have the reward. So that means if I have the reward, I have the money. I have a house full of money. I have this, I have this. That means that I'm going to be like Yaakov Avinu. That's why he didn't see anything wrong with himself. Because he saw it. Have the reward. He has the money. He has the fame. He has the fortune. He has everything. So figure, oh, I'm just like Yaakov. I have the reward. Because no, no, no. That's not the reward. The reward is being connected to Hashem. How you connect to Hashem, real connect to Hashem, by doing that not? by doing His will. And that's why Rabotai, it says there's a very, very big difference between a Talmidim of Avraham and a Talmidim of Bil'am. The Talmidim of Avraham, they benefit both in this world and the next. The reason why they benefit in this world and the next is because they're connected to Hashem at all times. They also have problems. They also go through bankruptcy. They also have issues with money. They also have issues with work. They also have issues sometimes with marriage, and sometimes with kids, and sometimes with family, and sometimes with this, and sometimes with that. They also have problems. But they have a sefer Torah that they're glued to. They're glued to the Sefer Torah, and they say, "Ah, I know where the problems are coming from. Ah, I know where it's coming from. Abba, Abba is giving me the problem, so that's good. Then, at least it's coming from Abba. At least it's not coming from some guy. It's coming from Abba. Bo Hashem. Thank you, Hashem. Why? Because I know if it's coming from you, if it's coming from you, at the end it's going to be good. If it's coming from you, if it's coming from Hashem, at the end it's going to be good. If it's coming from a person, it's probably going to be bad." 90% chance it's going to be bad. Like divorce rate. If it's coming from a person, it's most likely it's going to be bad. That's why the Tehilim, David HaMelech says, Arua Adam butech beish. Cursed is a man that relies on another person. Why? You think that the money he just invested with you, he just gave you, oh, you're depending on it? Oh, you're cursed already. You're cursed already. Why? Because you think that this is going to be the good. You think this is the reward. You replace the reward of Hashem with this guy. person that goes through problems but has the Torah, has the instruction set already enjoys this world because he knows there's a reason for everything even if he doesn't understand it even if she doesn't understand why is Hashem doing this to me it's making me sad it's making me sad, why does Hashem want me sad why does Hashem want me sad, Hashem broke my heart today why, why is He doing this, oh maybe He wants you to cry because when you cry, you pray better. Maybe the only way you're gonna get what he wants to give you is if you cry for it. And you have a heart of stone; you don't want to cry. So Hashem is forcing you to cry because he really wants to give it to you. Why? Because you remember Mount Sinai. What did he say to you? I love you. He, Hashem said. What did Hashem say to you? He said, "I love you, but there's rules, and I want to give you everything. I want to give you everything. But there are rules. I can't just give it to you. There are rules." So sometimes you have to cry for the man. Sometimes you have to cry for it. You don't want to cry. You want a tough guys. Oh, I don't want to cry. Okay, so I'm going to make you cry. Make you cry. Why? Because that's how. That is the system. I want you to cry, because I want your tears to open. The heavens in Shemayn. To just give it to you like it's free lunch is not a reward. The Gemara says that one time Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos was sick towards the end of his life. The Talmudim came to visit him, and they saw Rabbi Eliezer Gadol, Rabbi Eliezer ben Hokinos, is the only one in entire Gemara, the entire Shas, that's called Gadol, Rabbi Eliezer the Big, signifying his massive amount of Torah that he had. He was the Rabbi of Rabbi Akiva. So a few Talmidim came to visit him, and they saw him sick, and they started hysterical crying. Then Rabbi Akiva came, and he saw them crying, and he started laughing. He looked at them strange, like, Rabbi Akiva, you're laughing. He says, you're crying. Why are you crying? They say that we see a sephil tolah, suffering, and we're not going to cry. Rabi Elisabeth Harkinosh, you know, Sefer Torah, living Sefer Torah. That's what Talmit Chacham, the Sefer Torah. It doesn't have to be Rabi Elizabeth Hulk, It could be a regular Talmit Chacham, 18-year-old kid, knows a little bit of Torah, Talmit Chacham, that's Sefer Torah. That's a Sefer Torah, it's a living Sefer Torah. They say we see a Sefer Torah suffering and we're not going to cry. He says, for that reason I laugh. He says, until now... I saw my rabbi, Rabbi Eliezer. Everything went good for him. He had money. He had Torah. He had wife. He had kids. He had an easy time marrying his kids off. He had no problems with Parnassah. Everything went good for him. And I was scared. I was scared that maybe he did something that he doesn't even know what he did, that he made a sin that Hashem says, el sonav el panav that maybe he made a sin and he doesn't see the wrong in himself, that Hashem punished him and says, "Oh, you, know olam I'm going to give you all the reward for your Torah here. Because I saw everything is good. I saw the guy has a wife, has a kids. How did they get married? He has panasa. He has everything. I saw he's not struggling. I was very worried for my rabbi. I was very worried. I said, I'm so scared. Why? Maybe Hashem gave you the reward in this world. Hashem yachem. But now that I see my rabbi struggling, then I know, Baruch Hashem, I see struggling, ah, I know he has olam For that I laugh. For that I laugh. That's the einayim of a tzaddik. That's the, that is the eyes of a tzaddik. That's the eyes of someone that's a talmid of a That's ein tova. Ein tova is to give Hashem kav schut, and to understand that everything has to be for the good, it's easy to give each other food because you don't want to get into a fight. Everyone's wants, "Oh no, I give you kavshut. Oh, I give you kavshut that you didn't come on time because probably you were busy." No, what else? Why the reason he's not coming? What about giving Hashem kavshut? What about giving Hashem benefit of the doubt? food is benefit of the doubt. What about giving Hashem benefit of the doubt? How come the check didn't clear? You don't have any money in the bank. How come you don't have any of this? How come you don't have any of that? How about how about you give Hashem kavshut? We don't give Hashem kavshut. Why? Because we want it now. We're like three-year-old babies who want stuff now. Present, present. I want present now. Now, when you're three years old, it's cute. You're like little Sarah. Oh Hashem, little tzedakah. When she wants something, you're present. She mentions it 500 times. Hashem starts saying, listen, you don't give her, I'm going to give her. <laughs> you don't give her a present, I'm going to give her a present already. She said 500 times, like 516 times like Moshe Rabbeinu. But when you three, it's cute. When you're three, you 3 you do not get angry. Why, well, it's cute. What about when you're 30? You told Hashem, Hashem, present, present, present. Okay, what'd you do for me? What'd you do? Did you do catch ma on time? you put feeling on in the right place or are you still putting it on your forehead? Like the Christians. They put feeling over here. You see, sometimes people put feeling, they take pictures of themselves in the Bekneset. People love taking pictures of themselves in the Bekneset. And you see the guy put feeling over here. It's like, you know, instead of being worried about showing off to everybody, he put feeling on, you should put feeling on in the right place. So no, it's between my eyes. Yeah, that's not here. Between the eyes, it'll be on top. That feeling is supposed to end right at the hairline. Right at the hairline. If you went bald, you have to remember, where did your hair end? If your tefillin is already going over the forehead, it's going over the hairline, you don't, it's not like you, you didn't lay tefillin. You didn't get out of the chova. You didn't lay tefillin. There's one guy that's a hero. I see him, he puts two tefillin on at the same time. That's not, that. some people used to do it, but it does not mean ag. He wants to put Rabbeinu Tam, Rabbeinu and Rashi at the same time. The problem is that both of them are at the wrong place. So he doesn't do this one, he doesn't do that one. So, sometimes people are so busy showing off and pretending to be Avraham that they forget that they're in reality they're Bilam. In reality they look like Avram because they have Tfilin on. They look like Avram because they have a Tzitzit on and Talit and everything else and the hat and the beard and all the stuff that goes with it. But in reality they're a descendant of Bilam. Like this one woman who has funded this Keilah in Atlanta for many years with her family. And she's considered the matriarch of the Keilah. She funded, she put a lot of money. They have a lot of money. So they gave, they start a little Keilah of their own. And people go there and they eat and they drink and they benefit out of these people's investments. So she feels like she's a tzadikah. She feels like she shuts a sadiqah that when she embarrassed one of my students in public, she didn't think there was anything wrong with it. When she called her a prostitute in public for absolutely no reason whatsoever, just because she crossed her legs in a certain way, she thought there's nothing wrong with it. Why? Because she finished off by saying, but no offense though, no offense. No offense. She embarrassed her in public on Shabbat. Maybe 50 people are listening to this. She murdered a person in public. But no offense, though. No offense. You know, no offense. Oh, so you just just murdered me. I'm bleeding all over the place. But no offense, though. Like people think that if you said, no, but don't take offense after they murdered you. No offense, though. No offense. I don't take it the wrong way. What what other way am I going to take it? Some people are so busy showing off to the world the exterior, the money, the looks, they forget that the difference between Bil'am and, and Avram is not the exterior. They both look exactly the same. They both look exactly the same. Hashem says in the Gemara Ta'anit, I don't want you to rip your clothes or put ashes on your head or fast. Instead of ripping your clothes, rip your hearts. That's what I want. Rip your hearts. Do tshuva." So here we see that when a person understands what it means to be close to Hashem, he inherits this world. He also has problems, but he understands the source of all of his problems. He understands that eventually it's all going to turn out not only okay, it's going to turn out good. It's going to turn out great. Doesn't make any sense. Perfect. Talmidim of Bil'am Rasha, on the other hand, are quite the opposite. They suffer in this world and the next. Now what about all those people that you see enjoying this world, or at least what seems like enjoying this world, all these so-called happy people that are driving on Shabbat and have casinos and, and so on and so forth. It looks like they're happy. What about all of them? The Mishnah... Includes them also. And it says the following. It says these people, they inherit Gainom. And it descended to a well of destruction. Meaning this Gainom, this suffering is both in this world and the next. And where is the hint? The hint is in the Pasuk. The Pasuk says, O oh God shall lower them into the well of destruction. Men of bloodshed and deceit shall not live out half their days. So... Hashem says, oh, David Amelach says in Te'ilim, Elohim toridem lebe'er shachat anshe damim, lo yechetsu yameim. Anshe means men of bloodshed as if they're murderers. But, the in Aseret Sanhedrin, page 69b, says, these anshe are people of money. Damim, if you remember, also means money. Blood, The plural of blood, is damin. And the Torah calls it money. Calls it money. Why? Because a person spends their entire life chasing money. So when you actually go shopping, before you buy that expensive car, or that expensive watch, or the expensive painting, or the expensive whatever it is, Instead of saying, oh yeah, this is only $500. Oh yeah, this is only $5,000. Oh yeah, this is only five whatever it is. Instead of that, you should evaluate it. As Rabbi Nisim again used to say, so you should evaluate it. How much of my life did this cost me? Why? Because in reality, you spend time, you spend blood getting this money. So how much time did it take you to actually get this $5,000 you're going to go waste on some watch? Or some flower, or some desk, or some what? How much time? Do they, if you're making five thousand dollars an hour, then okay, you spend an hour to get this, uh, this 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 item, no problem. Maybe it's worth an hour for you. But if it took you three months, four months, six months to save this five thousand dollars, six months of blood you're spending on what? On tires, on rims. So people can say, "Wow, look at those rims." They're spinning. They're spinning. Look, he's got he's got spinners. What? He, what is is, is, is is the Shama is spinning in Shemaim? Why? The guy just spent a year of his life for rims. A year of his life, a year worth of blood, sweat, and tears for rims. A year worth of blood, sweat, and tears for a rock. For a navigation system. That's why it always always mind-boggling to me how much money people spend on weddings and bar mitzvahs. It's the most absurd thing in the world. Today, we've gone to such a low level that it's like literally to have a bar mitzvah is more expensive than having buying a house. People literally put a down payment for a house for a bar mitzvah. The kid's 13. He doesn't know right or left. He doesn't know anything in his life. But you want to make sure that... Uh, You impress him and his friends and his neighbors and your friends and your neighbors and everybody else and you have a theme party. You know, the Lion King party. You bring the actual lion to the bar mitzvah. Hopefully he doesn't eat the people. You know, you bring the theme of the dolphins. You bring dolphins with the aquarium or something. People literally spend tens of thousands of dollars on the shtuyot. Complete nonsense. Now, if you're a multimillionaire... And you're you're printing money practically. You want to spend fifty, a hundred thousand dollars on a party? It costs you an hour of your life, no problem, no big deal. A week of your life, no problem, no big deal. But the reality is, most of these people spending fifty thousand dollars on these parties, they make fifty thousand dollars a year, maybe sixty, seventy thousand dollars a year, maybe. And that seventy thousand dollars, a hundred thousand dollars, they make whatever it is. It's not like they keep a hundred thousand. It all goes to the expenses to the high lifestyle they have. So in reality, to save this fifty thousand dollars, it's you're talking about took them ten years. So what do a lot of them do? Oh, the satan arrived at the uh, at the uh, shiur, the Facebook just shut down. Bao Hashem means we're a good part. One second. One sec. That's, that's, let me finish the point. We'll start the... Uh, yes, go ahead. No, ask the question? Yes,
1: yeah, so you said about woman who embarrassed her students. Ken. She sounds like she's probably sound like She's modest, like Sarai men. Ken,
0: Ken, Ken. Ken, of course. I if she's my stu- If she's my student, she my can't... Not. The
1: one who embarrassed
0: her. Oh, the one who embarrassed her? No, no, no. She wears a uh, wig and uh, is not exactly the most modest person in the world, but she has a lot of money. So that's also part of the reason that she wears a wig and, and my student that wears Kisur Rosh and looks like a tzaddik like she just came from Mount Sinai. It bothers people. It bothers people that somebody looks like a tzaddik and you're just pretending to be a tzaddik. It bothers people. It bothers Haman to see Mordechai. It bothers him. It bothers Bil'am to see Yaakov. Now, people that spend all of this money on these bar mitzvot, on these weddings... It's absurd. It's ridiculous. You have a lot of couples, they start off their marriage with fifty, a hundred, two hundred thousand dollars in debt. Why? Wedding. We had a fancy we had a fancy wedding. Instead of getting a house, instead of doing something actually resourceful in the world, they go and they borrow money from every family member, every friend, every foe, everything that moves. And why to have to show off to the world that they know how to have weddings. I remember one guy used to work for me. He literally didn't have money money to, to eat. He didn't have but would have to constantly lend the money. He bought his wife a diamond ring, but he also bought a fake one too. He bought a real one and a fake one. And the real one stayed in the safe like a baby. The real one stayed in the safe like a baby. The fake one was always on her. Why? So everybody sees she's wearing a three, four, five carat diamond on her. But it's three dollars, the diamond. No one knows. Because everyone knows. She, she, maybe maybe it's the one that saves. Maybe it's not. So people live such a fake life because they're so focused on impressing everyone else. Why? What is the root? What is the root of this evil we have inside us that we literally feel like we have to impress people? Rabotai, you'll be surprised that it all starts... With your eyes. It all starts with your eyes, all of it. The root of all evil starts with your eyes. These eyes that you call windows, these windows to your neshama, they're the beginning or the end of your spiritual development. Now in the Gemara Zarah, page twenty B. It says the following: It says, "Don't look at women. Don't look at immodesty during the day, so evil does not come to you at night." So the says, "What evil? Evil meaning wasting seed, Arayot. It Says, "Yeah, but I didn't do. I didn't do it. I didn't do it. I, I went to sleep. Yes." Unfortunately, when a man starts looking at things that are immodest, even if it's his sister, even if it's his cousin, even if it's a picture on TV or on a computer and it's not even real, even if it's a cartoon, if it's immodest, his Yetzirah will develop those thoughts and it will make sure that the seed will leave his body with or without his help. And that is still considered a sin. Now the Chosemi Lublin was so scared of this sin of looking at things that were inappropriate, he literally put a towel over his head at all times to cover his face. Sometimes you see certain Hasidim walk around the airports in different places with towels over their faces. But we're not supposed to do that because it makes us look very odd to the public. And it's more of a Chilul Hashem than it is a Kiddush Hashem. But you are supposed to watch your eyes. Now, a person that doesn't watch their eyes can literally lose everything. The Gemaraim Masechet Sotah, page 9b, said that there was a person that was a such a holy person, such a holy prophet, that it says that Hashem was walking in front of him at all times. Most of the prophets says that Hashem spoke to them. Hashem spoke to them. But then we have Moshe Rabbeinu. Hashem spoke to him face to face. That's the prophet of all prophets. But there was another prophet in history that it actually says in the Torah, Hashem was next to him at all times. Big time. tzaddik, Kodesh Kodesh Kodeshim. Hashem is next to him. The Shekhinah is there at all times. doesn't leave. It's not like, go away, I'll come back, maybe later I'm busy. No, no, it's always there. The Gemara says his name was Shimshun. Samson. Now in a Christian world, they make Samson seem like a rasha, like a wicked person, like a womanizer of some kind. That's because they're stupid and they read the Torah literally. In reality, Samson was one of the most righteous people that ever lived. But he failed at one thing. He didn't watch his eyes one time. One time he didn't watch his eyes and he saw a non-Jewish woman that looked pretty. And he says to his father that he wants to marry her. And the Gemaraim Masechet Sotah says that he sinned with his eyes and therefore Hashem took them. The prophet... That's Kodesh Kodeshim. That's the head. He's the, he's the, he's the head of Am Yisrael. He's not like some guy that's like a hero. By the way, the Gemara also says he was Nechei. He was paraplegic. Like the movies, they make him seem like he was like Hercules or something like that. He was paraplegic. He was strong. He had the strength of Kedusha, though. It wasn't strength of physical strength. It was strength of Kedusha. But the reality is here is that he lost everything. Why? He didn't watch his eyes One time. One time. He didn't watch his eyes. If you go into the Reshit Chochma, the scary book that we got a lot of information about Genom from, there's a certain section in there that talks about chibuta kevil, what happens in the grave after a person dies. Every single guy needs to know this. If you don't watch your eyes, you should know that the first thing that happens after a person goes into the grave, the Malach comes, as an angel comes and he takes out his eyes. Why? They were the opening to all of the sins. Every single sin starts with the eyes. And that's why we say in Kriyat Shema three times a day: once in the morning for Shachrit, once at night for Arvit, and once Kriyat Shema Alamita. From here we learn: we say that don't follow your heart. Or after your eyes. Here the Chazal explains to us that if you're going to look at it with your eyes, eventually it'll become de- de- desirable by your heart. Whatever you look at will eventually become desirable, even if it's a 95 year old old lady. The Rambam in Chotchuvah, chapter 4. Alaha 14 says that anyone that thinks that just because he's looking at an ugly woman or an old woman he's not going to sin because of it is simply a fool. Somebody came to the Gaumi vilna and told No "Kvadarav, I don't have to worry about watching my eyes. I don't look at anything. I don't look at anybody. It doesn't bother me. I can look at anyone. It doesn't affect me at all. It doesn't affect me at all. I'm good, kvadarav." The Gaul Mivina asked Talmid, Talmud, give me his name and, and his mother's name, please. He says, why, Kvudarav? He says, I have to pray for the sick. He's sick in his mind. He thinks that he can look at a woman and it doesn't affect him. I'm here 80 years and I'm scared to death to look at a woman, but this guy over here says he can look at any woman and it doesn't affect him because she's ugly. So I have to pray for him. He's sick. Give me his name and the name of his mother. Rabbi Aaron Rata, Alava Shalom, says that when a man is able to watch his eyes, at the moment of truth, he sees that there is a woman coming, and he looks away. At that moment, he can ask Hashem for whatever he wants. You want a zivug? That's the moment to ask for it. You want money? sustenance you are having financial problems that's the time to ask why because at the moment you watch your eyes you are a descendant of Yosef at Sadiq who's remembered as the person who watched his eyes more than anyone else now if you notice if you notice it says that Yosef at Sadiq he looked down the Midrash says When Eshet Potiphar, the wife of Potiphar, came to him, the Midrash says that she was one of the four most beautiful women that ever lived. And she was one of the four most beautiful women that ever lived. And she would change her outfit several times a day just to get his attention. In the morning she'd wear a gown. In the afternoon another gown, another gown, another gown. She'd constantly wear new beautiful clothes that if she wasn't beautiful enough the clothes would make her even more beautiful. Now when the time of the big test came Yosef would never look at her. But one time when the big test and everybody went away and she was alone in the house with him she told him, look at me. And Yosef, look down. He would never look at her. So Chachamim asks, how come he didn't just close his eyes? Why not he just close his eyes? Poke his eyes. Said poke his eyes, don't poke his eyes. So point is, why didn't he just close his eyes? Close his eyes, though. If you close your eyes, it solves the problem with the mirrors. Every time she would see him, even before that, look at me. He would always look down. Why didn't he close his eyes? So there's two there's two things about it. Number one, it's much easier to open your eyes than to look up, physically speaking. It's a much easier move for the body. Even though the difference is minute, the difference is minute. I mean raising your head, you have your head down, and raising your head, let's say it takes a second. To open your eyes takes a half a second. Raising your head, let's say, it takes an ounce of energy. Opening your eyes takes a tenth of an ounce of energy. It's less. Yosef was so makpid, so stringent on watching his eyes, he even understood the difference and evaluated the difference of how much strength he had to use to fight his Yetzirah to watch his eyes. He says, if I look down, to go up and look at her, I'm going to have a lot more strength. Why? Because it's more difficult to look up. A little more difficult, but it's more difficult to look up. So I'm less likely to look up than to open my eyes. Why? Because there's less resistance. To open my eyes, there's less resistance. I can open my eyes like that. And if I open my eyes, immediately I see her. Whereas here, maybe I can even stop halfway. I see the foot. I'm already going to stop. Remember, my father said that if I look at her, if I do anything with her, he's going to take me out. Mariah uh, uh, Sotai, I believe it is, says that Right before, he almost sinned. He almost sinned with uh, Eshet Potifal. He saw the image of his father, Yaakov. The image of his father, Yaakov, came and he saw a vision of him. And Yaakov says, if you touch her, I'm taking you out of the Shvatim. You're never going to be remembered as one of the Shvatim. You're never going to be one of the tribes. I'm cutting you out. Last minute. So what did, what did he do? Now, this is the, the moment of heat, the moment of panic. What am I going to do? He took the, the Gemara, says he took his hands... And he broke all of his fingers. He dug all of his fingers into the ground to create an enormous amount of pain. Because once a person has pain, a man has pain, his arousal, his heat is gone. He created an enormous amount of pain. That's why you see in the books of Rabbi Shimon Yochai, of, uh, of the Arizal, and uh, some of the books that talk about Pekama Brit, they say that one of the solutions, if you're in a moment of heat as a guy, to stop yourself is to actually pinch yourself to do a lot of things that inflict pain on yourself. Some people even put fire, put a, light themselves on fire. Some people uh, like take a, a match and, and burn their finger or a cold shower or things like that to create pain because once you have a pain, your arousal goes away. But the point is, is that we saw that Yosef at Sadiq literally took, took his hands and broke his fingers. Because he literally sacrificed himself in so much pain, the Gemara says, miraculously, the semen that was created went out of his nails. Went out of his nails. So now, we see that Yosef at Sadiq's first reason here is that he looked down instead of closed his eyes for that reason. The second reason is much more important. The second reason is much more applicable to us. You live in the world and the Yetzirah is going to appear to you in every single shape and form that he wants. Now usually people need they have a need they have a desire to, f- to be wanted. Sometimes you're going to see in the world odd couples where one of them is extraordinarily good-looking and the other one looks like he just came out of a cave. It's like, what is this beautiful woman doing with Gargamel? What happened? Now, of course, most fools are going to say, oh no, because he has a lot of money. It's not always the case. Sometimes it's the opposite. Sometimes the guy is very good looking and she looks like she just came out of the sea with the whales. What happened? Like, what, what's, the, what's, the, what, what's going on here? How did this be? How, how is it? Because it has nothing to do with looks. It has nothing to do with money. It has to do with the amount of attention and love that the other person gives them people want to feel wanted. So sometimes you're going to see a person with someone that's not necessarily matching them physically, but they match spiritually. They match in different ways that are much more valuable, much more long-lasting, where the woman gives the man such amount of love that these things are not as critical for him, where he sees the beauty inside rather than focus on what every other Joe Schmoke focuses on. Same thing on the opposite. Sometimes the woman sees this guy is a real good guy, even though he looks like he just fell off of a plane with no parachute. He's a good guy. He pays attention to me. He makes me laugh. He's generous. He's this, he's that. Even though he's generous with three pennies that he has, it's fine. At least the three pennies he gives me. He's still generous. He still gives me the... So the point is that sometimes people, they'll fall in love with people for the right reason, not the wrong reason, because of the affection. Because of the desire that they feel from the other person, and it feels good to be wanted. Now, if a person is already married, this is good. You have to pay attention to your wife. You have to pay attention to your husband. You have to pay attention to them. You can't just say, "Hey, what's up?" You can't be one of the roommates. But, but the problem is, if you're not married, and you do something that the world calls flirting. Now, I've had a lecture about this in the past, and I've said it once. I've said it twice, probably a few times. There is no such thing as a platonic relationship. Platonic relationship in the in the in the secular world means men and women that are friends, but just friends, nothing intimate between them. There's no such thing. There is no such thing that will ever last. If you have a guy friend, that's only because he wants to be with you. It's not because he likes you as a person or because he's homosexual, which is still an unhealthy relationship. The reality is that every guy that's friends with a woman is only because he has an interest. And he thinks that maybe one day when all the other guys break her heart, she'll eventually come back to me. Eventually, when all these people do this, eventually I'm going to be the one that marries her. And that's just the reality. Women don't see that far. They don't see that they don't see it that way. They say, no, no, but he's really nice to me. And I'm married and he's married. Guys don't care about stuff like that. Guys that spend their time being, you know adding more and more girlfriends to their life care less about whether you're married or not. In a moment of weakness, both of you will end up doing a giluya. Both of you will do the, the crime that you cannot undo. Now This all starts because one of you showed a desire to the other. One of you showed a liking to the other. One of you flirted with the other. One of you showed extra attention to the other. By what? By simply looking and smiling. A simple look and a smile above and beyond the ordinary. Above and beyond what's permissible, which barely is anything is. could literally make another person fall in love with you. Lust, not real love, but that much. So Yosef at sadiq what made him at sadiq What made him at sadiq is that he knew that not only he doesn't want to look at her, he doesn't want to look at Eshet Potiphar, but he doesn't want her to look at him. So he looked down. Why? Because if I look down, she can't see me. And if she can't see me, she can't see my face, she can't see the real me, she just sees a a figure moving. She sees a profile, She, she doesn't see me. We don't have any eye contact, then her desire for me will be lessened. Automatically, if you make eye contact with a woman, something happens. Automatically, if you have a conversation, like some people, no, no, look at me when I talk to you, oh... If you're a female and I'm a male, I can't really do that. Why? Because there's going to be a connection. And we can't afford to have this connection. Seyaf HaTzidik was saying, not only I don't want to look at her, I don't want her to look at me. Why? Because I don't want anything to happen here. And that's why, Rabuta, it's very, very critical for a person to watch his eyes. But you don't need to be a weird person that walks around with a bucket on top of your head. You need to see but the reality is you have to train yourself to see as little as possible. Most of the time, if you're in a business world, you're outside and so on, spend as much time as you can training yourself looking down and only looking up based on necessity. Now, this is not easy. This doesn't happen overnight. But the point is, yeah, it, it's possible. If I can do it, you can do it. Train yourself to look at things based on need. That's number one. Two, don't stare at people. If they're the opposite gender. Don't stare at them. Look as much as you look. And even if sometimes you need to look a certain way, because there's only one person in front of you, look through them, not at them. So instead of looking at her face and all of her features, you're looking at oh some hair that's sticking out, or the wall behind her, or the fly that's flying around her head and she doesn't realize it. You're looking it looks like you're looking at her, but you're not really looking at her. Why? Because you cannot allow yourself to have that connection. This Rabotai is something that is a trick to not only get you to become pure and not waste seed, but also to get your Torah remembered. When you learn Torah, you're actually going to remember it. As Avadia said to one of the Rosh Yeshivot in Israel, when he said, "What's the secret behind you remembering all the Torah?" He says, "I watch my eyes." He goes, well, we watch our eyes." He goes, "No, no, watch my eyes, everywhere, all the time, no exceptions. No, oh, yeah, but this one's allowed because it's my cousin. Ah, oh, this one's allowed because it's my this. It's my no, 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 nothing. Unless it's your wife, you don't look. Right, exactly. Exactly." Uh, Dayan, instead of looking at, at the people who draw pictures, making, it, making them think that he's actually writing down everything that they're saying, so they don't get offended. But in reality, he's just drawing pictures for his kids. He remembers everything they said. Why? Because he's not looking at them. That's why he remembers. So a person that watches his eyes is not only going to be able to watch his bleat and have a much easier time watching his bleat, He's also going to be able to get his prayer, his Torah remembered. When he learns, he's going to remember it. The third thing is, is that he opens a special gate in heaven where when his prayers come in, they get a special VIP treatment. As Rabbi Aaron Rata says, that when every single time you have a test, an unintentional test, not that you're walking around in a mall and you're closing your eyes. If you're watching your eyes, you don't go to malls. You don't put yourself at test test on purpose. A person that puts themselves in a test on purpose is considered a rasha. The Gemara says that if a person has two ways to go, one is a long way, one is a short way. The long way has no women. The short way has women. And he says, listen, I'm going to go in the short way, but I'll close my eyes the whole time. In today's world, you see a guy walking around with his eyes closed. You go, oh, it's Sadiq Balayil. That's a tadik, He's coming to uh, let's give, him, make, give him a lecture, give him a bikknisit, give him donate money to his cause. The guy starts a foundation because he closed his eyes one time. Gemara says the guy that walks around in the street, the short one, the short way, knowing that there's women there, is a Rasha. Why? What makes you so confident you're going to pass the test? the guy that goes to these places where he knows there's going to be modesty, if he does it knowingly, he's considered a Rasha in the eyes of the Gemara. And the reason why is because he has too much confidence in himself. He has too much confidence in himself that he's going to pass these tests, that even Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi Meir Balanes almost failed. So, a person that watches his eyes at the moment of test At that moment, he can ask Hashem for whatever he wants. I can tell you there was one guy that was divorced in his mid-40s, not exactly the biggest catch in the world. His ex-wife was a nightmare, alive. His kids didn't really want to see him too much because unless he was giving them money, like an ATM machine, their mother... His ex trained them, trained trained his daughters to hate him. So he didn't really have such a great past. At the same token, he uh, wasn't exactly rich. Barely making ends meet, and whatever ends he had, he would have to give it to the kids just to see them. Like I said, wasn't the biggest catch in the world. Every bad option he picked with women. He had a very, very bad choice in women. And one time I told him, listen, I talked to him about wasting seed, all the stuff that he's doing, he's ruining his life, and so on and so forth. He's like, yeah, but how am I going to do it? I'm already alone, I'm this, I'm that. i am going to do it? I'm in my mid-40s, 47, 46 years old. I'm going to find a woman, what am I going to do? I said, watch your bleat You watch your bleed, it starts with your eyes. You watch your eyes, you watch your breathe, you're going to be Okay. And Hashem is going to bless you. He goes, what bless you? What am I going to find? I said, you're going to find something good, but you have to watch. He took it on, and I don't even think it was four or five months. Four or five months of us watching his breath, maybe less, maybe more. Hashem knows that he probably couldn't handle much more. Literally within six months, he met a woman that within 40 days, they were married. 40 days they were married. which is un- he, now, he didn't grow up religious. He was completely secular before we met. Then a couple of months they married. Why? Hashem knows what you can handle. He knows what you can't handle. When you go above and beyond, Hashem will go above and beyond. So I've seen this work. I've seen this. It's not like some fairy tale that happened to Rabbi Akiva 2,000 years ago. And Rabbi Meabar Baranes 2,000 years ago. No, it's stuff that happens now. I see it all the time. People that watch their eyes, they get a lot of gifts from Hashem. On the other hand though, the guy that looks at women, the in Maseche Baruchot, page 61A, says that anyone who enjoys looking at a woman's hands, even while he's doing business with her and giving her change, even if he has Torah like Moshe Rabbeinu, he loses a share of the world to come. Now the Chachamim say, how could it be that he just lost his share of the wealth to come? The guy just looked at another girl. He didn't make a sin. He says, yes. The looking itself, he didn't lose Olam The looking itself, he didn't lose Olam The problem is that once a guy starts looking, it's only a matter of time before he starts doing. It. It's only a matter of time before the eyes and what you see in your eyes get implanted into your hearts. And that's why we say it in Kriat Shma Velota Tua Hilivhimekim. Don't follow your hearts, don't follow your eyes. Why? The two are one and the same. It starts with one, it goes to the other. If you look at it, eventually you're gonna fall in love with it. Or at least you're gonna think you are. Now Not, not more important, but it's also important. Also important. Now, the Gemara also says in the same Gemara, if you remember, I told you this a few months ago, he says there are certain things that a guy should never do. He should never walk around behind a woman. If he walks around behind a woman, he sees a woman in front of him, he must pass her immediately move fast and pass her if he walks around behind a woman he should he's a rasha. he shouldn't even walk behind his own wife. and it says there are certain things you shouldn't do that are dangerous it says don't also you shouldn't walk behind a lion all right lion turns around he's gonna eat you but if you have a choice either walk behind a lion or walk behind a woman walk behind a lion It's better to walk behind a lion than a woman. Because the lion only hurts the goof. The woman hurts the neshama. The Gemara Maseret Sanedrin says there was a certain guy that was sick. Became very sick. Because there was a woman that he fell in love with and she didn't want him. So he went to the doctor. He says, uh, "I need, I need help, please, please. I fell in love with her. She's the best." She goes, "She knows you know. She doesn't know me. She just doesn't want me." No, no, no. So the doctor says, "This is my mash pikuach Let me call the, let me call the rabbi." Kvod how are you? Listen, I have a patient. Uh, you maybe know him. It's this uh, Steve down the street. Yeah, you haven't seen him in the knesset, right? Yeah, yeah. He's sick. He's dying. Why is he dying? He says he's dying because he wants to go out with uh, one of the women in your uh, shul. And she's not interested. So maybe you convince her to marry him, maybe. So the rabbi says to the doctor, let him die, and she's not going to marry him. So the doctor, you know, thinks to himself, okay, wait, not die, wow, not going to marry him, no chance? No, she doesn't want him, we cannot, there's no force, it's not Islam. We don't force marriages. She doesn't want to marry him, she doesn't have to marry him. He wants to die because of it. Let him die. So okay, can maybe 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 he can look to look 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 at her through a fence. She can walk around once a day by a fence and he can look through the fence just to see her. The rabbi says, Let him die. And she never walk around next to him even one time. Let him go die for that. As a Jew though, Shomer Mitzvot. Let him go die, and not look at a buddy's side walking around and getting aroused by it one time. Better off he died. Okay, Okay, fine, fine. You don't have to look at her. You don't have to marry her. Fine. Maybe, maybe they could talk. She yeah, There's a wall, wall, cement, nothing. No, no, see nothing. But maybe we can make like you know the old days that telephone like it was through a rope. Maybe she could talk to him. Maybe you could talk to him maybe like once a month. Could just hear her voice once a month. Maybe he could... <laughs> he's dying. Mama's dying. Not like, thing, like he's saying, I'm dying. No, Mama, she's dying. He's going to die. The rabbi says, let him die and she's never going to talk to him. Why? Don't let your yet fool you. If you see it, it's going to go to your mind. And as Kvodo says, sometimes if you hear it too. This is why it's critical for a person to watch what they listen to. To watch what they listen to. If you remember, I mentioned this to you in a uh, book by Rabbi Fraim Kahlo and my Rav. In Achdov L'Israel, the the Perek Bet, Bauch Hashem Perek Gimel, the third one just came out a few months ago. This is Perek Bet, It's a Shelot VeTshuvot, and he mentions it here in Siman Kaf Aleph, uh, Amud Shin Yud, three hundred ten. It says that. he says that a person should know that if he speaks disgusting words curse words filthy words It's obviously bad, but even if he hears them, if he listens to them, because he likes to listen to Tupac Shakur, he likes to listen to Biggie, he likes to listen to Eminem and 50 Cent, he likes to listen to uh, Wizzy, Wizzy, the the guy with the the dreadlocks that uh, never wears a shirt, Lil Wayne, he's little, he's 40 years old, he's still little. He wants to listen to all those people. Drake, Drake, the the half a Jew. (laughs) He wants to listen to all these people. He's not saying the curse words himself. He wants to listen to it. Here we have a source. It says that even if they decreed in Shemaim 70 years, meaning a life full of good, like in Parashat Ekev, Moshe Rabbeinu says you're going to get good, food of the womb, food of this, food of the you're going to have money, you're going to have power, you're going to have wife, you're going to have kids, you're going to have this. But you like to listen to gangster rap and hip-hop and all this other garbage? All of it deleted. Delete. Here you see guys, here the keyboard has a delete. Delete. That's what it says. Arabi Fahim uses the source. What's the source? The book of Isaiah, chapter 9, Verse seventeen. So a person could literally lose all of the reward of this world that he has, all the stuff that he prayed for, he'd do it, middle of the night, middle of the ocean, middle of the yard. He's crying to Hashem, Hashem, and this and he started twelve thirty in the afternoon every day. He's Hashem, thank you, Hashem, thank you, Hashem, thank you, Hashem, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, and nothing's happening. Why? Because every time you turn on the car, instead of shiut Torah with Rabbi Eron, or Rabbi Ephraim, or Rabbi Mizrahi, or somebody else that's in this world still left saying, I'm it, what are you do uh, if you going to you, All this shtuyot you listen to? You know, Eminem cursing his mother, or 50 cent cursing somebody else? By the way, I know all these names, because I used to listen to them too. I had over 900 songs in my little iPhone. When I heard this, I had iPhones, yeah, iPad, iPad, iPod, I, 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 I had iPod, iPad, yeah, it was a long time ago. I had all these songs. I know, I know them all better than you guys. I've been around for longer. I was around when it all started. But when I heard, I'm studying six hours to one page, six hours for one daf gemara. Not like you guys, chachamim. You listen one gemara and you finish it in a week. Me, I was retarded when I first started. Six hours, one daf. And I said, I could lose all that whole and just for listening to Eminem for five seconds. I started deleting. Within 24 hours, 900 songs, I got deleted, I never listened to it again. Why? It's so hard to attain Torah. It's so hard to get it. It's so hard to get close to Hashem. After all the tum'ah we've been in, in our life, it's so hard, you're going to ruin it with one song? And I also noticed, by the way, that as soon as I removed this cancer out of my life, all of a sudden it became much easier to be happy why because the aggression that you get from this type of music it could also it's also rock and roll it's not different all of this lyrical music same thing trance rock all that all, all that other stuff that has these aggressive words it's less aggressive because of the, the words but it's still aggressive in regards to the type of music
1: Don't do nigunim before you don't feel an arid in bo'ay. Nigunim. Hashem spadaik. Don't put it was in the ground. Hashem spadaik. It was like the Russian guy. <laughs> Look at all the nishaya, <laughs> everything with plants. Mash the plants. I understand zalichana draped this biggie. I understand that. But plants?
0: Let me finish.
1: Okay. Are they me and you shall have plants?
0: No, they weren't. The same
1: with Arabic
0: music. Stop making yourself a fool. So, when it comes to these music that has lyrics, doesn't matter if it's rap or hip-hop or rock and roll or whatever other type of uh, genre of music there is, if it has curse words, automatically it's destroying your neshama. Automatically those curse words will make you curse. Automatically it will make you think of those things. It will lead to you, as Rabbi uh, Nachman Breslev says, that listening and welcoming those types of words in your life will lead you to wasting seed too. So, these types of things, listening to when you knowingly, knowingly are going to actually elect and choose to listen to curse words, you could literally be destroying the vessel of, of bracha that Hashem wants to give you. All the stuff you've been praying for, and, in and all that stuff, you've been praying for it, Hashem wants to give it to you, but you want to listen to curses all day. Hashem says, okay, I, I, gave, I gave it to you. You ruined it, don't blame me. Now on the other hand, when it comes to these songs of females, no man is allowed to listen to any female sing, Especially if he knows what she looks like because the Gemara says her voice is considered like her nakedness. The, if you listen to the rest of the lecture the Rambam in Il chapter 4 alachah uh, number 14 says that a person that thinks that just because a person is ugly therefore they're not going to be attractive is a sick person. Why? Because the Yetzirah will make even a 95 year old crippled woman attractive to you if he wants. There's actually a person that went and made a video recently, and he went on the news because he just celebrated his 30th birthday, and his his, uh, girlfriend, his love of his life, celebrated her 93rd birthday.
1: But she wasn't crippled. I understand 95, but crippled?
0: 95? Anything, anything. So, anyway, so as far as listening to women sing, you're not allowed. Now, as far as listening, as far as listening to any lyrical music, it's very, very difficult to ever say yes, simply because most lyrical music has to do things that are not allowed, love songs and such. So, this is a very, very difficult place to be in. Uh, now, somebody asked the "How come there's not many alachot about songs? How come there's not much alachot about music?" So in the beginning, our Vadi didn't answer right away. So they kept asking the question, "Kvod like "How come, kvod How come? How come?" There's not that many alechot that you wrote in your books about music. And he looks at them and he says, "Alechot about music? Who says you're allowed to listen to music?" The Bet Hamikdash was destroyed. Abba doesn't have a house. What are you celebrating? But at the same token, there is certain type of music that's considered holy. What kind of music is considered holy? If it has something to do with kedusha, if you're singing Hashem's name, if you're singing the Torah, and so on and so forth, there's nothing wrong with it. Like for example, Nisim Black, God bless him, he just came out with another song, and he sings hip hop. He used to be a rapper in his old days, and so on. And he still is a rapper, only now he changes lyrics. You listen, you listen to his in English. You listen to his, uh, you listen to his song. It's literally like learning Torah. Can I have my Shur? Nisim nice Blank made a, his songs, if you listen to his lyrics, not only is allowed. Honestly, I think it may be, some people will say, maybe even considered Limut Torah in some places. Why? He gives you strength with Emunah. He talks to you about real things that have to do with Hashem. Every one of his songs. You guys probably all know him from Hashem Melech, Hashem Malach, Hashem Imloch, that song with uh, God Elbaz. So, so... So he's fantastic. He came out with a new song, and it's a fantastic song about emuna, but also about serving Hashem and so on. So things like that are permissible. There's no problem with it. So there is permissible music, but the reality is 99% of music is not that. 99% of music is shtuyot. You're not allowed to listen to. That's why, for example, if you have a desire, you like music, the best bet if you're not listening to this stuff that's allowed than to listen to classical, listen to just the uh, just the uh, music itself. I still would not recommend listening to the techno type of music in general because it's still aggressive, even just the music itself. Although it's less it's it's uh, less of a problem than listening to women, but nonetheless, if you could listen to uh, music that's not aggressive, it'll help your neshama calm down. When you listen to aggressive stuff, whether it's with because of the music itself or it's because of the lyrics, even more so with the lyrics, it'll make you aggressive. Aggressive in your behavior, aggressive in your language, aggressive in your relationships. It affects you even though you think it's helping you. The satan always tastes good. Satan always looks like ice cream. Always. Satan always looks good. Satan always looks like a tzaddik. A sav looked exactly like Yaakov. They couldn't tell the difference until they were 18 years old. Couldn't tell the difference between them. So... You have to know that there's a lot on the line. There's a lot on the line because the Gemara here says also in uh, in Masechet Shabbat, page 33a, that a person could literally lose every single blessing he has in his life. Every blessing he has in his life simply because he chose to listen to bad things. If you went to the store and some 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 Nazi came in there and started cursing up a storm, no, that's not your fault. There's obviously still, still a deen in Shemaim. It's not exactly the best thing in the world. But, it's not, you didn't elect to do it. You didn't elect to do it. But if you turned it on, you press play, it's 100% sin. You press play, and the people you're listening to are cursing, you are at fault. You are sinning. It's not like, oh, it's a No, no, it's 100% sin. Now, some people think that watching your eyes is like a khumra. It's like a, uh, it's something that maybe. Maybe it's only if you're a chassid. Only you're a chassid, then you should watch your eyes. So you should look no further than the Gemara Masechet Yoma, page 29a, where it says the thoughts of sin, the thoughts, the imagination working, the thoughts of sin are much worse than the sin itself. The thoughts of sin are much worse than the sin itself. So the Rambam... Puts a commentary on it. It's like, how could the thought be worse than the sin itself? It says, because the Rambam explains, because the thoughts are a direct attack at Hashem only. Whereas a sin that you actually do affects other people. It affects other people. So it's not like you're going against Hashem. You're just fulfilling a desire. You had a certain desire. You're fulfilling a desire. It's a, it's a, it's a physical, it's an animalistic thing. Other people are affected by it. Other people see it. Good, bad, indifferent, whatever it is. But when it's a thought, when you're looking at things you're not supposed to, when you're thinking about things you're not supposed to, that's an outright, you're declaring a war against the Shem. Why? He's the only one that suffers from it. Look at what my son's thinking about. He's thinking about this and this and this instead of thinking about Moshe Rabbeinu, instead of thinking about Torah, instead of thinking about Mishnah, instead of thinking about... Torah. Why is he thinking about He's thinking about Go'am Nefesh. He's thinking about disgusting things. Look at my son, what he's doing. Look at my daughter, what she's doing. She's thinking about the dresses and the, this and the, Instead of thinking about Telim to pray for our kids to, to become Tzadikim, she's thinking about the dress that's not even modest. Look at what my daughter's thinking about. And this also, Rabotai, applies to women too. It's not just for men. Watching your eyes is for men and women. Obviously, it's not to the same extent for women as it is for men because women do not do not get physically attracted to men simply by looking at them. But a person needs to know, just like the Ritva said on Masechet Kidushin, that a Talmud Chacham needs to evaluate, needs to watch his eyes based on how well he knows himself. So there's a Gemara that talks about how Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai sat down, if you guys remember I told you, he sat down at the opening, at the front entrance of the Mikveh. Because he was one of the beautiful people of Yerushalayim. And he wanted all the Jewish kids to be beautiful. So it's a known thing that if a woman looks at something beautiful, before she goes to the mikveh, it will affect the physical aspect of the kids, of the child she has, if she has a child with her husband later on that day. Now, because he was gifted this beauty, he wanted to use it for kedusha to make Amisal beautiful. So some people will say, wait a minute, how did he allow himself this? Talmidim asked him, how could you allow yourself to be in front of uh, the women over there, at the mikveh? He goes, I know myself and I know that first of all I'm not looking at anything. I'm closing my eyes the whole time. I'm just sitting there like a corpse. They're only looking. I'm not looking at anything. That's number one. Number two, I know myself. I know that when I, if even if I see something, it has no impact on me whatsoever. But that's Rabban ben Khaman where he revive the dead no one is like him now but the Ritva says from here we learn that a person needs to watch his eyes as much as he knows himself what does that mean if you know that you still are addicted to wasting seed that means you have to be very very strict with yourself to literally look at nothing nothing no internet uh, no, uh, no phone no this nothing zero you have to go cold turkey as much as possible if you work in a place where there's women and so on, you have to literally train yourself and be very, very strict with yourself because you know you're still addicted to it. Once you've gotten to the point where you could fulfill that addiction, you have the addiction still, but you have a wife. You have a wife, and you know that you can hold yourself until you get home, until you're with your wife. Then you know that you don't necessarily need to like drive yourself crazy and act weird all day. But at the same token, each person needs to know himself, needs to know himself But this also applies to women. How does this all apply to women? Part of the reason why a lot of people suffer in this world is because they constantly look at their neighbors. They look at the neighbor's car and they start suffering about the car that they have. Even though their car is not so much older, it's only six months older, it's only a year older, it's only five years older than the neighbor's car, And they loved it perfectly fine until they saw their neighbor's car. She liked her house until she heard that her next door neighbor is remodeling her house. She liked her kitchen until she remembered she found out that her sister is remodeling her kitchen. And she wanted to go see how she did it. And she wanted to go see what she bought. And she wanted to go see this and she wants to see that. And she wants to just go to the mall just to window shop, just to look just to look at what's available. This is a cancer. If you spend your time looking at the grass on the other side, you are developing a spiritual cancer because you are developing desire for things. As the Ten Commandments says, tachmod. You're not allowed to be jealous of people. Now how do you become jealous of people? The first step of jealousy is by looking at what they have. If you don't look at what they have, you don't care about their kitchen, you don't care about how much money they have, you don't care about who, what, when, and how, you only care about your stuff, automatically you're destroying this yetzara. Why? There's nothing to be jealous of. But every time you meet somebody, he's like, What do you do? What do you care what he does? What do you do? What do you care what she does? Was she paying your bills? Is he paying your bills? What difference does it make to you what they do for a living? No, I'm just getting to know them. How do you get to know somebody by knowing he's a dentist? How how does that that assist you getting to know them, that he pulled a tooth right before he got here? How does that help your relationship with them? Explain to me, please. Why do people care if the guy's a lawyer or a doctor or a mass murderer? What difference does it make to you? How do you get to know the guy based on that? In reality, I'm telling you why. People ask people, especially especially when they first meet them, what do you do? Because they're trying to measure them up. I'm measuring you against me. Who makes more money? Me or you? I'm a doctor. You're a lawyer. How many years? You're a lawyer? Ah, six years. Ah, I definitely make more money than you. Are you a partner? Ah, you're not a partner. Oh, Hashem he's not a partner. You're a lawyer. I'm a lawyer. You're measuring each other. You're going against each other. It's a competition. That's why people ask, what do you do? What do you live? Where do you live? What do you care where you live? You know why they care where you live? They want to know how much money you have in the bank because that tells me how big your house is. Oh, you live in Lakewood? Oh, so he probably has a house, three, four, five hundred thousand dollars. All right, he's okay. I live in uh, Long Island. It's one million. It's all right. I'm better than him. You still like him. But as soon as you find out that he lives in Long Island and you live in uh, Bombay over there and you know in, in a gutter somewhere, all of a sudden, ah, yeah, yeah, I'm, I'll see you later. I'm busy. I got to go. All of a sudden, you're not interested in him anymore. Why are not interested? Because now you're jealous. It's eating your heart out that there's a bigger house than you, or this, or that. Where do your kids go to school? You find out they go to a better school. All of a sudden, you start hating the guy in your heart. All of a sudden, you start hating. I don't really like her. Why? What'd she do? Why don't you like her? I don't know. She just rubbed me the wrong way. She didn't rub you the wrong way. She didn't say a single thing. You're just jealous. You're jealous of what she has. So, first thing, stop asking people about what they have. You want to get to know them? Ask them about them. Ask them to share their thoughts. Share your thoughts. See what kind of opinion they have. Who cares how much money they have in the bank and where they live and what kind of car they came in on or if they came in on a horse or they walked here or if they live here or they live in Zimbabwe? Who cares? None of this stuff is going to help your life. All it's going to do is create a poison in your life where you're going to be jealous of people. This is where it comes in for both men and women to watch your eyes. Don't look at the grass being greener. Don't look at the grass at all. It's not your grass. Stop looking. I remember this in, my, in, my, in the business days. People used to love talking about other people's money, all these celebrities and this and that. It would drive me crazy. I never understood why do people care that other people have money or do they don't have money. And then it would really bother me when it would start counting my money. And eventually, I told him, "You counted my money so much. Eventually, I lost all of it. You aynarah, all of you, evil eye, all of you. Counted my money so much, it all came out. It all it all disappeared. When you look at the grass being greener on the other side, that's a midah of Bilam." When you look at the physicality of the world and you only think about things you can consume and all the things you can take. It's like a buffet. You just want to eat stuff. You just want to take stuff. Buy this, buy this, buy this. When your whole world is just physicality, materialism, you are 100% a Talmid Chacham of Bilam. When your whole world is physicality, materialism, all you care about is materialism. All you care about is up, You're for sure a Talmid Chacham of Bilam. Why? Because Bil'am suffers his whole life. It says that Bil'am doesn't even enjoy this world. Why doesn't he enjoy this world? He has a Ferrari. He has a big house. He just won the lotto. How come he doesn't enjoy? Because he's always looking at the other guy. He says, I have, but he also has. I did, but he also did. And he did more. And he has more. And you're always looking at who has more. Everybody on a Forbes 500 looks at the other guy that's on top of them. And the guy that's number one, by the way, you know what he's looking at, and all the people that are not on the list, but he knows they have more than them. Everybody knows he has more than them. They're just not on the list. They have so much. Forbes is not even allowed to talk to them. They all suffer inside about somebody that has a little bit more than them. I remember there was a movie that I saw a, um, years ago when it came out before Tshuva, or uh, I think, it was, yeah, I think it was before Tshuva. Baruch Hashem. Uh, it was a second installment to a uh, movie called Wall Street. And uh, the, uh, the character asked uh, one of the villains, if you will, of the movie, and he told them, you have all this money, you have this, you have this, you have that. What else do you want? And he says the perfect answer of Bil'am, a little more. That's it. That's the answer. That's the answer of Bilam Rabotai. That is Bilam. Bilam. It doesn't make. It's not saying that he wants just a little more. Just a little more. That's why even this world is Gehinom for him. He's suffering his whole life because he's never going to have enough. And it's not just money. It's also Kavod. You're never going to have enough kavods. So you got all the money that you want, but now you want everybody to know, and all of a sudden you find you realize no one cares. Imagine, you worked your you, work your, you work your butt off to get all this money. You got this, you got the house, you fixed your house, you sweat, you blood, everything. You build a house and no one wants to come to your party. No one wants to come to your house. No one cares about your money. You want to die. Why? Because I did it just to show off. Now no one cares. No one's given me any respect. No one has given me the respect that I deserve. Now when you get to a point where you're chasing kavod, That is the living Gehenom of Gehenom. Why? Because even if people give you respect, it'll never be enough. Because they're always going to say something that's not exactly what you wanted. Yeah, he said good job, but he was supposed to say great job. It wasn't a good job. I did a great job. I did a great job. Don't tell me good job. Great job. And they harp on it, and they get upset. I did a great job, not good job. Good job for other people. They get all upset about nonsense. Why? Kavud. Oh, how come she didn't name me after her? How come? You know, all these families, they have kids. Kaparat Avonot have kids in Judaism today. Why? After the couple, the brand new couple has a kid, the whole family gets into a fight. Why? Everyone wants the family, wants the new couple to name the kid after somebody. No, you can't name her after her. She's a this, she's a that. And all of a sudden, you discover all the laundry that the family has been hiding. He hates her. She hates him. Uh, what kind of name he has? What kind of name she has? What are you going to call him that? Might as well call him Bilam. What are you going to call him that? That's sub already. Huh? She's on this. She's on that. Uh, all of a sudden, all the hatred in the world comes out. Why? Because everybody wants the moment of pleasure. It's literally a moment of pleasure. It's like, ah, see? They call the kid after me. They call, you're never going to see the kid again. They're, they're living in, uh, in, in Alaska. You live in New York. You're never going to see them again. But... They call the kid after me. You know the kid? It's after me. Me. The kid. Uh, me after me. It's my it's like it causes it causes kids, not to want to have kids. Why? It's like if I have a kid, it's gonna be another one of these fights. The family's gonna fight because I named the first one after this one, the second one after that one. In general, you should know there is there is a uh, divre chazal, there is a divre chazal that says that you shouldn't call people named. You shouldn't name kids. After somebody that's living. After somebody that's living. People can do whatever they want. I'm telling you what you should do, what you shouldn't do. You shouldn't name people after somebody that's living because there is a belief in the Sephardic world as well as in the Ashkenazi world that if you call somebody after a living person, you're taking away a piece of their life. This is this is a this, this is one of the yivre uh, chazal that I heard one time from my rav, and I, I don't remember the book off the top of my head. But there is a belief that you shouldn't call somebody after a living person. There was one story that he told me one time, and he says there was one guy that told his father, uh, told his grandfather that he's uh, he's naming his son after him at the Beit Mila. The grandfather ran out of the place. They had to chase him down. Eventually, after they chased him down, say, "Why are you running away?" He says, "Why are you trying to kill me?" So, why am I trying to kill you? He Goes, "Yeah, you name your kid after me. That's it. This man, my, my life is over." So, it's not a, it's not a mean It's really a real thing. Some people don't hold by it. Some people don't hold by it. In general, I think much more dangerous than than losing life and so on is the kavod battle. When you name kids after the parents and the grandparents and the sides and that side and that side, in general, we should listen to the Torah. First of all, pick names that are in the Torah. Don't pick some name like like or something like that or some American name. Uh, Pick a name that's in the Torah. Number two, you should let the wife... Pick the first name, just like we saw in Yehudah and Tamal. Tamal picks the first name. Why? She's the one that carried the baby, not you. You should have the wife pick the first name, unless you guys have a mutual relationship where you don't, you, know, you don't care really, which is odd. Let the wife pick the name first, and then take terms. The husband picks second, but in general, you shouldn't pick something that's against the other person. Meaning if, let's say for example, the wife doesn't want the kid to have a certain name and the husband wants, you shouldn't do it to her. Why? She Again, after all, you should encourage her to have more kids. But if every time she has a kid, you're torturing her with names, then guess what? She's not going to want to have kids. So don't be stupid. Don't be stupid. When it comes to names, it's completely unnecessary. I personally don't recommend calling kids after anybody's name. Uh, you know, if you want to call your kid David, and your father's name happens to be David, Chazaku Baruch. But don't call him because your father's David. Why? Because if you call him because your father's David, then you have to call him uh, after your mom, and her name is Samantha, let's say. And you don't want to call your kid Samantha. You understand? So it creates problems. It creates more problems than it solves. That's my opinion. It's not Torah. It's just my opinion. Uh, but in general, I know that a lot of people had major, major brawls. A few couples almost got divorced. One of them actually got divorced over a name for a kid. So, and the reason for all of this, Abutai, you're laughing. The reason of all of this is because people did not watch their eyes. And because they didn't watch their eyes, they always looked at the grass being greener on the other side. And they always wanted more and more and more than what they had. And part of wanting more is wanting more Kavud. And the battle for more kavod never ends. It never ends. You're never going to get enough kavod. You're never going to get enough respect from people. You're always going to feel disrespected. You got respect from nine people. One guy didn't respect you. That's it. It's the end of the world. Who did that? Haman. Haman got millions of people to respect him. One Jewish guy didn't respect him. That's it. He says, nothing is worth anything to me. Yeah, but you're worth a trillion dollars. You're worth a trillion dollars. You have wife. You have kids. You have the, you have more money than the king. What do you care that some Jewish guy would pay is is uh, doesn't respect you? No, everything is worthless. Why chase kavod? Chase kavod. So that rabotai is the uh, a person can literally see can see in themselves whether they're a Talmud of Bilam or Talmud of Avraham Avinu. And it's important. It's important for us to know. It's important for us to know. It all starts with very, very basic things. Yes? If he died. If your father died, it's a different story. If he's alive, if it makes your father happy and your wife happy, then it's a different story. But if uh, if he doesn't make your wife happy, you're not allowed to make your wife unhappy for your father. Everybody should know, anyone that's not married or even if you are married, you should know that as soon as you get married, your wife or your husband is more important than your parents and more important than your kids. Your spouse is officially, once you get married, once you sign an aktubah, your spouse is the number one human being on earth, even more important than you yourself. So you're not allowed to disrespect your wife for the sake of your father or your mother or your kid or your neighbor or your boss or anybody. You're not allowed. So a lot of people think that they're doing a mitzvah by disrespecting their wives or their, or their husbands because they're kavod avaim, the, the, the honoring the parents. It's not a mitzvah. It's not allowed. You're not allowed. The wife is like his own body. By disrespecting his body, it's like he just drank poison. So it's very, very important for people to understand that Allahot, when it comes to Shlom Bayit, and not just uh, don't yell at her and don't yell at him. There's more details than that. You have to know that if you treat your wife like your own body, then your wife and your marriage and your life will be happy. If you treat your wife like it's just another person, Especially when there's other people around. You're still trying to uh, show off. You're going to have a miserable life. You're going to have a miserable life. So it all starts with watching your eyes. That's the number one way to show respect for your wife is to watch your eyes, not to look at other women, not to look at other things. If you look at another woman while you're, you know and you're married, you're less than a dog because that's what dogs do. But they're dogs. They have an excuse. You don't. Um, and again, it's, there's no end. We can give even more information about it, but I think you guys got the point. Um, it's watching your eyes, watching your ears, watching your actions. These are things that no one but you, no one but you, will know if you're doing, other than Hashem, obviously. And that's why this Mishnah says, Ma talmidav shel Avraham avinu le talmidav shel Bil'am? What's the difference between the students of Avraham and the students of Bilam? Why? The difference is, the difference is, the chidush is, the difference is unnoticeable. They both have a beard. They both have a hat. They both have a kisui rosh. They both have a, a long dress on that covers all the way to the ankles. They both go to biknesset, They both pray three times a day. They're both retaining. They both come to the shiul Torah. They both do all those things. Everything. The stuff that distinguishes Bil'am and Avraam is what happens when no one's looking. The stuff that no one notices. Where is his eyes? Where is his eyes during the day? Where is his mind during the day? What is the number one priority she has? What dress she's going to buy or if she's going to finish enough tailing before lunch? What is on her mind? What is she thinking about? Is my husband going to be a tzaddik or is my husband going to be an ashil? A rich guy. What's more important to her? What's more important than him? Where is their minds? Where is their? Where, what are they thinking about? What are they thinking about? That's the difference between Bilam and Avram. They both look the same. They both eat. To, to the public, they both even act the same. It's the stuff. It's the unnoticeable character traits to make the difference between the two talmidim. That's the difference between the two rabbanim.